So for those of you who don't know me, my name is David Glick. I'm probably spoken a few sessions here at Pain Week already. Um, so my running theme for Pain Week this year and for many of the other meetings we talk about is basically it's all about the diagnosis. When it comes to treating chronic pain patients, no matter what it is, I mean, let's face it, if you are pretty good at diagnosing what you think the underlying problem is, then you get to provide a more highly patient-centered diagnosis because with the ability of providing this highly patient-centered diagnosis, then we can take a step backwards and really provide a highly patient-centered method of treating that patient. So what I wanted to do with this couple of hours that we have today is talk about back pain, but I wanted to give you some background as we go not that I want to scare you, but I want to show you what typically happens during the course of normal treatment. But then we're going to take the second hour, and we're actually going to go through some of the clinical pearls you can do to incorporate into your exam so that you can get a little bit more information out when it comes to evaluating these patients' backs. You know, because the key is, again, if we have a different starting point, we get a different outcome. So with that, I have nothing to disclose. So our course objectives are simple. We need to be able to identify some of the primary and secondary underlying problems in the patient's back that can contribute to back pain. But I also want to demonstrate that how routine examinations can, can be quite inadequate sometimes when it comes to causing or diagnosing the patient's pain. And then assuming now that we've taken that to the next step, we want to see how we can use these exams and observations to get more information about the patient. So we start our voyage this morning, much like you did with the neck and upper extremity session we did on Tuesday, and talk about the fact that back pain is not a pathology. It is a symptom, right? So the analogy we used on Tuesday was knee pain. How many of you have knee problems? Not very few. Usually we get more people raising their hands. Well, if you have a knee problem, do you run around telling people you have knee pain, or do you say, I have a torn meniscus, right? Or an ACL tear, or something of that sort. So we've made a step to get a more refined diagnosis because we know that if you do a meniscus repair on a torn ACL, what's the expected outcome? It's not going to work. You know, and the problem we have sometimes with any kind of myofascial musculoskeletal pain, the issue that gets a little bit strange is because it's not life-threatening, nobody takes the time to really better diagnose it. If you misdiagnose back pain and the ultimate onset then was potential mortality, then I think people would spend a little bit more time to get to the root of the cause, but they don't have that motivation. So if I ask a room of people what you think the actual cause of back pain is, the number one response is disc herniations, slipped discs, right? Pinched nerves. How many times do patients come into you and you ask them about their pain, and instead of saying, I have back pain, here's what it is, they say, I have a herniated disc. I heard Dr. Cueva say on, I think it was, was it Tuesday or Wednesday? He said something I will live, that I think will live in infamy. The most dangerous animal on the planet is a patient armed with an MRI report. <laughs> think about that. Because once you tell a patient, and, and Dr. Schottmeyer has a great session on that about Saturday, as a matter of fact, about what we tell patients and how important that is, and that's why you need to attend that session. So the problem is you ask people what's causing their back pain, everybody wants to say disc herniations or disc pathologies, but we know that we identify these things all the time, and yet we're treating something else and patients get better. So I don't claim that I have a miracle cure for back pain, and frankly, there is no single treatment to treat back pain. The other thing that I like to say is there is a patient for every treatment. 
So the key to an outcome is knowing what patient should get what treatment at what time. So the miracle cure is actually better differential diagnosis or better triaging. So here's my controversial statement. So after I put this out, you guys can slap me, and then we'll get back to where we were supposed to be. But I would argue that chronic pain often occurs as a failure to adequately differentially diagnose the problem. There's no other way to explain what we've seen all these years. When we see these patients with chronic pain pathologies, all we do is take a step backwards, change the clinical assessment, alter the working clinical diagnosis, come up with a new game plan, and we take the problem off the table. And then we find it harder to get them off their meds sometimes than it is to treat the underlying pain pathology. Is that scary? So we talked about the idea that every patient is different. Well, you have round patients, triangular patients, trapezoid patients, cylindrical patients, whatever. Well, you have round clinicians, physicians, trapezoid clinicians, square clinicians, cube clinicians, whatever. The problem is, if you put a round clinician with a trapezoid patient, what happens? Nothing happens. It doesn't work. But if you put a trapezoid patient with a trapezoid clinician, physician, what happens? Well, then we probably get an outcome. And Jim Giordano used to point this out to me all too often. What happens when the patient's half square and half round? Well, then you've got to find a half square, half round physician clinician, or you've got to find a round guy, or, you know, a square guy and a round guy working together so that the cumulative outcome is something that's effective. And that's what we do too, because all too often, we're either combining treatments or combining interventions to address a problem, because again, the net outcome of the two things together gives us an outcome that neither one can do on their own. So there were no guests when we talked about that for this one. So maybe that's a good thing for that little controversial statement. The most important tools to anything that we treat with respect to pain is always the history and the clinical examination. The patient comes in and tells you a story. This is where I hurt. This is what makes it better. This is what makes it worse. This is how it happened. Then based on this information, you are making a, a relative thing in the back of your mind that says, okay, these are the possible causes. Um, so I'm going to do a problem-focused examination to rule out or rule in what is likely the problem. And then because we've seen these problems before, we're able to recognize them, and that's where the clinical experience of the physician comes in, correct? Here's the problem. All too often, what it seems like to me is that patients are coming in, but no one's really listening to them. So then what you get is we start throwing darts at the patient, hoping that a treatment solves the problem. You know, we're reading imaging studies. We're not reading patients. Well, if you're throwing darts at the problem, one, how easy is it to miss it? And then how likely is it that you can potentially overlook it? So to me, that's problematic. So what I like to do is we take a step backwards, try and get a more specific diagnosis, so then when we decide what treatment that patient should have, we're like hitting a bullseye. That, to me, is the important concept here. So it's all about the diagnosis. And I'm going to tell you, this was, and I've said this a couple of times already this weekend, or this week. Okay, I pride myself on my really three and a half, four hour consults for a post-op low back pain patient, which I'm trying not to do anymore because I don't want to be involved in patient care any longer. Do we get information out of that consult that alters that patient from that point forward? Absolutely. Are we going to give you some clinical pearls to take from those to help yours? Absolutely. So when I started doing telemedicine consults, I was worried that I'm going to be violating my own rule and that I wouldn't necessarily get outcomes when somebody calls me from California. Turns out, we're getting outcomes when someone calls from California. And the reason being is it seems I'm still taking a lot of time on that patient history side of the equation. 
And you factor that in with the fact that I've seen like all sorts of variations to the theme. I've probably seen every, sur every single surgical complication you can figure out at this point. But because I've had such a clinical background, then I'm able to recognize some of the things that you get just from people talking to you. I used to play a game sometimes when patients would come in. You remember Johnny Carson? He used to have this thing with Karnak. He would dress up like a swami, and he would tell you the answer to the question that sat in the main age drawer in Funk and Wagnall's porch for the afternoon. Well, when the patient starts talking to you, sometimes the bells go off right away. And I think it was Dr. Zakharoff said in the keynote how observing the patient is extremely important. So I'm doing two-way video, too, so I can see. So between the fact that I'm looking at the patient and hearing their story, I'm already thinking about what's going on. And I can put it on a post-it note, and it's amazing how often you're right. So let's have some fun with this. The problem that we have, we all know this. What's the biggest issue we have when it comes to patient care today? Time. Time. What are we given? Five, ten minutes to spend with a patient? I had to stop by an orthopedic surgeon's office not that many weeks ago to um, talk about a particular patient that we have in common. And um, so I'm noticing they actually allocate nine minutes per new patient for a new patient evaluation for an orthopedic surgeon. Well, they have 15-minute appointment slots, but they keep six minutes of that for doing the records, so there's nine minutes involved in patient care. The guy walks in, and they do vital signs, or having a, you know, a support staff come in to do vital signs, do a general status exam. The guy walks in and explains the findings of, of, the, of the MRI and what they plan to do. They don't even lay a hand on the patient. Well, that's pretty good if you're doing there for a soldier, a soldier, soldier, shoulder pain referral, because how many different shoulder pathologies are there? How do you know that that MRI that shows a rotator cuff tear is symptomatic? Remember the neck and upper extremity pain lecture when we talked about the fact that over 60, 80 plus percent of the population has asymptomatic rotator cuff tears, even if they're asymptomatic? That's pretty scary. The problem is no one wants to put value on time, but if I can tell you that you can save one unnecessary low back surgery that might be $100,000, how many more patients could we see for that extra cost savings? The numbers work, but for some reason, there's like a paradigm shift that nobody wants to make, and I find that ridiculously frustrating. Patients think if they don't have an, an imaging study or latest greatest test, don't they feel like they're somehow cheated? Yeah, because the patients are actually putting time and attention to this as well. Well, here's the problem, and we talked about this in the imaging study session, so this is the same slide we used out of the imaging thing we did on Wednesday. Patient on the left, you remember, is a 27-year-old female that has radiating back pain. Well, back pain that radiates to the lower extremity following a lifting injury. So they do an MRI in the patient. The MRI looks pretty normal, doesn't it? it? Looks relatively normal to me. So the insurance company, workers' comp, thinks the patient is malingering. The physician who's treating the patient has the patient come in saying, I'm in a lot of pain, I'm in a lot of pain. What do you think he thinks of the patient? They're drug-seeking. Well, why not really examine the patient? So when you examine the patient, the patient has full-blown indications of a hardcore radiculopathy that you can localize during your exam to the L5 nerve root. So now you're conflicted. What does that mean? Well, you ever hear of the term radiculitis? Inflammation of a nerve root. Makes sense? Subcategory of radiculopathy. How many of you review MRI interpretations? Everybody sees MRI reports, right? Have you ever seen the definition or interpretation on an MRI report that says radiculitis of a nerve root? No. And I've seen 20, over 20,000 MRIs, and I've never seen that. But yet, if you have a patient that has a disc herniation, let's say, and you 
ooh, the disc is there. Let's do an, let's do a, uh, an epidural. If the epidural helps the patient, the pain goes away. If we repeated the MRI, is the, MR, is the disc herniation still present? Yeah. So what do we treat? You had to treat an inflammatory pathology. And maybe that inflammatory pathology might have been a radiculitis. There might have been some relation to that disc pathology because maybe there was a tear or maybe there was some inflammatory cytokines leaking out of this disc herniation that caused the nerve to become inflamed. So there's ways of explaining the pathology. But the bottom line is we didn't treat the disc herniation. We treated something else. Hmm, a little disconnect there. So the patient on the right was a 65-year-old farmer, if you remember, who avoided medical care, health care like the plague, because something happened when he was a child or teenager, and he just was scared of doctors and hospitals. So this guy is riding, riding his tractor, falls off his tractor, and gets an immediate onset of back pain radiating down to the lower extremity, following the same distribution as our 27-year-old employee from the warehouse that hurt her back lifting a box. So what do you see when we look at that MRI? Looks pretty normal until you get to the very bottom where it's at L5-S1, correct? So L5-S1 has spondylosis, decreased disc height, degenerative disc disease. You can see that there's some of the content of the disc has herniated out to the back. So we're going to have a little bit of canal and foraminal stenosis there too. So the question is, did that happen ooh, an hour before that MRI was done because that's when the MRI was done? Probably not. That took time for that degenerative process to occur. And even if you argue, well, that disc became herniated from the injury, that little disc herniation in the back would not compensate for all of the material that's missing. So clearly, timeline says there's another pathology going on, doesn't it? So this guy apparently had a pathology that was asymptomatic before his fall. So it turns out we got to see the patient the next day, and he did have a surgical pathology. The problem was he had a hip fracture. But ER said, told the surgeon, we're going to you know, get the patient signing out AMA because they told him they were going to have to do a decompression of his back. So yeah, he had surgery that week, but he had a hip replacement. So here you have, and that's the point, a selectively specific abnormality on an MRI that everybody can see that was essentially clinically insignificant. It did not relate to the patient's pathology whatsoever. And on the other hand, you had a normal study with a very symptomatic patient that would be under or not cared for because of the false impression of a normal MRI. So here was the corollary to that that I put up. It's our same 27-year-old female on the left. And look at the one on the right. So the case history for the one on the right was also about a 65-year-old guy who builds houses for Habitat for Humanity. This MRI single-handedly is the worst MRI I've ever seen in my practice outside of one that was post-surgical that had some other complications. So in this MRI, every pathology known to man that we see, whether it's spinal stenosis, canal stenosis, foraminal stenosis, um, facet hypertrophy, anterior herniations, posterior herniations, scoliosis, everything is all on this one MRI set. Okay? The patient's complaint is, I have a focal area of pain right here. It's especially problematic when I sit for long periods of time, when I go to get up, and if I'm walking, it starts really getting annoying. So in the back of your mind, you should be already thinking about what this patient might have, but that's a very minimal symptomatic profile for such a bad MRI, right? So the surgeon calls me up, and he was a surgeon that I had a lot of patients in common with and we had done very well with in the past. He says, Dave, have I got the case for you? So he was hoping that I'd give him a place to start because I tend to be pretty good at picking out what I think might be the symptomatic pathology. So he figured that would give him a starting point and we'd be good. 
So the patient comes in, I do my full thorough exam, and the only thing I can find on the guy is the gluteus medius trigger point. Don't know why, but he's got a gluteus medius trigger point. I even did an electrodiagnostic study of oak potential evaluating every single nerve root from T11 to S1 bilaterally, bilaterally on this guy, hoping to find some evidence of pathology, and I found nothing. No myelopathy, no radiculopathy, no radiculitis, nothing. As a matter of fact, he had the study of a 40-year-old, 40-year-old, perfectly normal. So I said to the guy, look, I'm not sure why you have a gluteus medius trigger point, but the only thing I can think about doing is, what do you do? Trigger point. We will all do that. So the guy gets up off the table, and he's a little sore from the injection, but he says, wow, I think you got it. I can't make it hurt. And I said, don't worry, it'll come back, right? Because it would when the injection wears off. Comes back two weeks later, and he was doing a lot better. He said, you know, it's coming back a little bit, but it's nowhere near as painful as it was. We injected it again, and I was expecting him to come back two weeks later because I knew we were going to have a problem trying to figure out why it's there. He calls up two weeks later and says, you know what? I'm doing really well. Do you mind if I, like, reschedule the appointment, and I'll just call you when it, if it bothers me again? It's like, sure. Never heard from him again. He went back to building houses for Habitat for Humanity. So the patient with the worst MRI on the planet has nothing causing back pain. And the, as I told everyone during the imaging session, the only other thing that happened out of that was that surgeon never sent me a patient again. So inflammation of a nerve root, radiculitis, does not show up on imaging study, but that can be quite painful and it reflect a full-blown radiculopathy. That's scary, isn't it? Because that means that the number one thing we probably treat, if you think about this, because we use injections, we use oral steroids, oral anti-inflammatories, we're treating our first line of defense in most cases, even physical therapy and manipulation, tends to go after an inflammatory pathology, and guess what the MRI can't show? That's kind of a little interesting, isn't it? So basically, while providing valuable information with respect to structure, we can't rely on imaging studies. We have to read the patient, not the imaging study. It, I can't emphasize that more. Read the patient, not the imaging study. I hate when patients come to my office and you start asking them about what their problem is and they're telling you the MRI results. You try and get out of them what their complaints are and they still repeat back the MRI results. Scary. So I presented this study yesterday because it still is one of my favorite studies for MRIs of the low back. So what Jensen did in the mid-1990s is he took 98, but we'll say 100 just for arguments, patients with no back pain whatsoever. And in doing that, it would, turns out that 52% of them had disc bulges and herniations. 30, what is it, 8% had disc bulges and herniations at more than one level. So what I'm saying is 50% of the asymptomatic population had anomalies on their MRI. The corollary to that is this study that was done in China in 2013, January 2013, published in 2016, where they saw 3,107 patients in two ERs during the month of January with an acute presentation of back pain. And when they did that, if you look at the data, 58.3% of them had normal MRIs, 41.3% had some pathology on their MRI, and the corollary to that was they had poor correlation with the level of the pathology on the MRI and the distribution of the patient's complaints on clinical exam. So in the very least, we sit back and say, wait a second, there is no correlation, is there, between the presence of pathology necessarily and symptoms? You have a 50-50 shot of having pain and an MRI pathology, or a 50-50 shot that you have a pathology with no pain. 
that is scary, yes? The study that I like that I always laugh about too is they said, okay, if you had back pain 10 years, if you had no back pain 10 years ago, but you had a positive finding on an MRI, I'm going to predict that you're more likely to have pain 10 years from now. And you know what that study came back and said? No. If you had no back pain 10 years ago but had a disc herniation, you were less likely to have pain 10 years down the road. So accordingly, we can all conclude from this point forward that having a disc herniation is a protection against having back pain. That's what the study shows. Okay, so the problem is the person reading the MRI doesn't necessarily review, although they have access to but how often do they correlate any findings on that MRI with any of the clinical things that are reported in the record? None. None. I've never seen it. Well, that's not true. I saw it once because the patient was the spouse of a radiologist. But outside of that, I've never seen it. So let's look at a patient like this. So why things are important when you look at the imaging studies is, what do you see when you look at this MRI? The most significant pathology here is this disc herniation at L4, L5, correct? A little one here at L5, S1, too, but I'd say the most significant pathology here is at, at L4, L5. You see the white-looking lips above the disc space here, above the disc? That is basically a sign of degenerative disc disease. This is kind of like a modic one, modic two. It's getting over there. Modic was the surgeon who described the stages of degenerative disc disease. How long do you think it took for that degenerative pathology here to set in? Months, years, yeah, possibly. Could it correlate with the onset of injury two weeks before this MRI was taken? No. So in the back of our mind, if you read the interpretation, it just says disc herniation. You don't know if it's relevant or not. But if you look at the picture, it's like, wait a second, you had no symptoms two weeks ago? That says that you obviously had a pathology before that was asymptomatic, so maybe it's not related to your back pain. There is the possibility that it is. Maybe we just pushed it over the edge and it became symptomatic. But at least in the back of your mind, it doesn't guarantee that that's the pathology. There may be something else, and you have to look. That's the key. So when you come across one like this, which is extremely important, this one shows nerve root compression as the nerve exits the IVF. So remember, those of you who sat through the imaging study session, what did we say about this patient who presents with low back pain radiating to the right lower extremity? with muscle spasms in the back, stiffness, limited range of motion, they don't want to move. It's a surgical decompression, isn't it? So there are cases when you have a surgical lesion, but you're combining the patient's clinical exam findings with the patient's clinical presentation and the imaging studies. These are only pieces of the puzzle. And in this case, we also connected the dots with an electrodiagnostic study because I wanted to see if it was low grade or severe because if it's moderate to severe, I'm not even going to try anything conservative. This patient's getting a beeline for surgery, which they had a minimally invasive discectomy. and did really well because we caught it early on. Let me give you a little tidbit here. Let's say this patient went for endless rounds of injections and therapy first. Is the potential there to make the patient more severe? Yes. There's another potential too because people don't talk about this. When you look at the neuroanatomy itself, there is a kind of a sheathing around the nerve root called an epinorium. Everybody remember that? So if a nerve root is compressed for a prolonged period of time, that epinorium can become scarred. Follow me on this one? So now we've created scarring of the epinorium, which is now adding to the compression. If I go in and I cut away that disc herniation, is the scarring on the epinorium still there? Yes. So post-surgically, 
The surgeon says, everything looks good. I can pass that steel ball right through that foramen. I don't know why you're still in pain. That's because it's been there for so long, the nerve root became scarred. It's still acting like it's compressed even though you removed the disc herniation. And that's one of the dangers we face when you wait too long to do something that should be done relatively soon. But you never heard that one before. Okay, so here's the presenting complaint. Presenting complaint is pain, numbness, and tingling right anterior lateral thigh. And I've had this discussion with a couple of people here at Ping Week, so if I already had this discussion with you, you are forbidden to answer this question. But if I have not had this discussion with you, what is the, what is the likely clinical diagnosis based on your experience and that complaint? And remember, whoever gets the question right gets a million points. The points don't matter because it's like, whose line is it anyway? Anybody want to take a gander? It's nothing to cough at. Moralgia parasthetica. Everybody remember what that is? Moralgia parasthetica is an entrapment of the lateral femorocutaneous nerve as it exits under the inguinal ligament. And because the distrib sensory distribution for that nerve is the anterior lateral thigh, that's numbness and tingling the anterior lateral thigh. And you know how I like to give you guys analogies so you don't forget them? Tom Jones disease. Remember Tom Jones? Yeah. You know, not unusual to be loved by anyone sitting on the dock of the bay and don't ask me to sing because I can't. And I can't do karaoke either. So Tom Jones used to wear really tight pants. So what would happen with the really tight pants is every time he'd sit down, what would happen to the crease of the pants? It would irritate the lateral from cutaneous nerve, thus causing moralgia parasthetica. So in his case, the treatment is wear loose pants. There's a medical explanation for everything. So here's what happened. This patient was a fireman. He's carrying a stretcher with, some, with another fireman down a flight of steps. And the other guy loses the grip of the stretcher a little bit. And he gives a little tug and a twist. And he ends up with a pull in his groin and numbness and tingling in the anterior lateral thigh. So he goes to the dock on the box like the county requires. And the dock in the box says, well, do you have back pain? And his answer is, yeah, I guess I have back pain. Well, he always has back pain. He's always like stressing himself, but not necessarily relevant to this injury. So they um, send him to an orthopedic surgeon for back pain. And the orthopedic surgeon never bothers to ask him about the numbness and tingling anterior thigh, although the patient wrote it on his complaint form and it's there, but there's nothing in the medical record about the physician asking about it. Strange. He orders x-rays. So the x-rays come back and they say, well, you know, you have multiple levels of degenerative disc disease. Let's do an MRI. And the MRI comes back and says, you have canal and foraminal stenosis with multiple levels of degenerative disc disease, L3, L4, L4, L5, L5S1 bilaterally. That's because if you look real closely, this big honking guy who's you know, my age, but built really tough too, is genetically blessed with short pedicles. Well, if you have short pedicles, guess what? You have a smaller foramen. You also have a smaller canal diameter. If you're genetically blessed with large pedicles, you might have so much space in the canal that you can have a full-blown disc herniation and still have room for things to pass. But if you have a tight space and a little bit of bulge, it can actually be more symptomatic. So the general anatomy of the patient makes a difference too. So he says to the patient, you know, multiple levels of degenerative disc disease, L3, L4, L5, L5, S1, let's do physical therapy. So the more therapy they give him, the more it makes his pain at the inguinal ligament worse and the numbness and tingling in the, on the leg because you're giving him exercises to do with his legs, so you're moving what's already inflamed. So he's telling the doc it's not helping, it's making his symptoms worse. So they said, well, let's do an epidural and see what happens. So the surgeon does a transframinal epidural at L5 on the symptomatic side. What's the distribution of the patient's pain? Is it L5? 
Um, is L5 on the right any different from L5 on the left or any different from L3, L4 either? Absolutely not. So let's say there was the potential for a radiculitis or a radiculopathy based on the distribution of the patient's symptoms. What level would you do a transframinal epidural at? L2, L3? Exactly, because that's the underlying neurological component of the lateral femicutaneous nerve, but it's also the dermatomal distribution of the anterior thigh. So would you expect an L5 transframmal epidural to have any effect? Absolutely not. So here's the, here's the next line. You ready for the next line? Obviously, the injection didn't work. We tried therapy. That didn't work either. So we're going to do, hold on to your hat, a minimally invasive surgery. Okay, when I hear the words minimally invasive surgery, I expect you were gonna do like a hemilaminotomy, drop a little tube in there, put some little instruments in there, do a little discectomy, seal them up, there's a band-aid closed in the lesion, we're all good, and the guy can go play golf two days later. To me, that's a minimally invasive surgery. Would you like to see what his idea of a minimally invasive surgery is? And I kid you not, because I'll show anybody the record who wants to see it. This is his idea of a minimally invasive surgery. They did a procedure that involves going up through the sacrum where you drill a hole in the base of the sacrum, putting a rod up through the body of L5, and this company makes one that has a double-length rod, so it goes into L4, too. It's like putting a, a titanium rod through the middle of you, creating a puppet, if that makes sense. But he said, but since that only went up to L, L4, L5, and we still needed to fuse L5, S1, he did a posterior lumbar interbody fusion, so a PLIF at L3, L4. And to make sure things don't move, we're going to do intraspinous spaces and facet screws as well. Now, when you put it in the record that you're going to do a minimally invasive surgery, I expect that. When you tell the patient when he wakes up and says, well, things were a little bit worse when we got in there than we thought we would, they were, so we needed to do a little more. You don't keep that hardware in stock at the hospital. I think you're, you know, let's just say I think that's less incredible. So now you, we see the patient fast forward. I'm seeing the patient, ooh, I don't know, it's like several months post-op. This patient is in acute distress. He cannot be in any weight bearing. The patient is excruciating. I told a funny story earlier about changes in pain scores. So this guy is the guy who used to say his pain was a big, tough fireman. He used to say his pain score was like an 8, 9 nine, well, yeah, eight, nine most of the time. Well, now he rates his pain score at a, like a million compared to that and says maybe he should have called his pain before a one because now it's relative, so he's got an acute problem. So he goes back to the doc with this acute new presentation. Can't sit, can't stand, can't move, can't find anything comfortable. Meds aren't working. He's in a really bad situation. So the doc orders an X-ray and a CT scan. So the X-ray shows the all the hardware that we have, the CT scan showed a couple of things here too. Let me read you the report for the CT scan. The CT scan showed that the methylmethacrylate used for the fusion at L3, L4 is now extruded from the space. There are translucent rings around the body of the hardware at S1 and L4 suggesting the fusion has not taken. However, the most significant pathology is the vertebral end plate at L4 has collapsed in the back of the hardware. So what this patient ended up with right over here is a vertebral body, but a vertebral end plate compression fracture. You see how it like kind of steps down? Well, if you had a vertebral fracture, think about the, an elderly patient with a comp compression fracture. Is that painful? What does he have? Compression fracture. So the doctor writes in the report, no evidence of any pathology. Everything looks good on imaging studies. I don't know why the patient's in so much pain. There must be secondary gain because this is a workers' comp accident injury. 
You know what I say when I see things like that? The cover-up is worse than the crime. So the fact that his records actually said that and the fact that this was there and this got swept under the rug, I will tell you that this went to a malpractice case and that they got a million-dollar settlement, which was policy limits, immediately after a deposition. This never even went to trial. Scary, isn't it? So let's talk about this case, because this is another one over here, right? So what happens when you do a cervical, a, a lumbar fusion? And this is one of those cases. So what bothers me when I see patients like this is, this was the clinical workup for this case. You ready for this? So I don't know why you have back pain, because everything's been relatively negative, including the MRI findings. So maybe it's discogenic pain. You ever get that line before? So what they did is they did a discogram, and the discogram that they did showed painful discs at L4, L5, L5, S1. So without any other indication other than a positive discogram, they talked this guy into a two-level fusion. Well, nothing personal, but I can make any discogram uh, positive, because if you pressurize the disc enough, guess what it's going to do? Hurt. So I'm not going to split hairs there. But I'm also going to say, okay, I like restoring cars for, for a hobby. That's my game. So if I take something apart and, and or I want to fix it and put it back together, I'm going to do it like a craftsman. I'm going to make sure that everything's so nice and neat. If I take off a part, I'm going to clean it, restore it, put it back nice and perfect. So if I'm going to build something, I'm going to do it really carefully. Would you expect a contractor to come into your house, put molding around your window, and have all the angles wrong at the corners? Or have the door hung crooked? No, you expect it to be done straight, looking nice and neat. What's the excuse when you put in like rods and screws to have the rod just going up so far above the screw? Can't you imagine if you're just sitting there that wouldn't that be poking into soft tissue? I mean, if you're going to do this, let's be nice about it and put the rod so it ends right about the top of the screw, which is a little bit more rounded maybe, so it would be less obnoxious to the patient. But these guys go in there and they act like they're the crappy contractor in your house who doesn't know how to hang molding around your windows. I really take that personally. So he does the, this multi-level fusion on the patient. You know what the patient says? I'm feeling a little bit worse, and it's still not happening. So you know what the surgeon says? Maybe the discs above are bad, too. So what you see in this image is, see the discogram findings? These are from the disc, this is the post-X-ray discography that the patient got when they went back for path number two. Luckily, somebody intervened and we got a hold of the patient before the surgeon got to extend the fusion. So what this patient had was a two-level pathology, really. One, there now was nerve root irritation inside the fusion, because I think that that got mechanically irritated as a result of the presence of the hardware, and the nerve root above it was being involved or irritated as well. The problem we have with these patients, though, I will tell you, is once you put in hardware, you screw up your exam findings because you change the anatomy. So now you have to rely upon intu intuition and a really good electrodiagnostic study. So I was able to come back and say we have a two-level pathology. So we went in and treated it. And you can actually see we did transferral epidurals at the two levels to calm down the radiculitis and fix that problem. And this patient might have had radiculitis at the beginning, but the fusion didn't correct radiculitis. It was to correct painful discs, which we don't know really ever were contributing to their problem to begin with. They did pretty good with the exception of, you know, every few months they'd have an exacerbation and you end up treating it with a medical dose pack or a little bit of therapy or something. But going forward, the hardware is in the way. So what do you expect? Here's another one. So here is a post-surgical patient. 
So this patient had low back and left lower extremity pain to the posterior thigh and leg with burning in the calf. What do you say about this one? See the little focal disc pathology here at L5S1? You can actually see it herniating out to the canal, causing canal stenosis. Can everybody see that on this side too? A little bit of canal stenosis because of the disc herniation. So this is post-surgical, yes? <laughs> Do we have a little bit of a maybe re-herniation? So they basically went in, took it out, and still had some inflammation of the nerve root. Well, remember, just because you decompress the nerve root doesn't mean the nerve root's still not inflamed. It doesn't mean that it healed post-surgically. Sometimes it just needs a little help. But because there's no hardware, at least the examination is still relatively relevant, which is nice. So this patient also received. In this case, what we did, because where's the disc pathology? You see how it's more central to the canal? So instead of doing a transferamyl epidural, which would be trying to get the medication in, we go do an interlaminar epidural, and you kind of squirt the medication to where it needs to be. Because there's a little clinical pearl buried in there. There was a study that was done a number of years ago where what they did was instead of using steroids for epidurals, they used saline. Guess what the outcomes were? Same as the steroid. So maybe we're just rinsing away inflammatory cytokines, but whatever we're doing is causing some kind of benefit, so that's great, so let's stack the cards in our favor, and I'm just going to inject where it needs to because at least I'll get the maximal benefit of the steroid, plus maybe rinsing away the inflammatory cytokines. So you can get more information off the MRI, too, than you think, because if you have put together the pieces and you think it's relative to the pathology, at least let's make a rational decision even among the different kinds of things that are available. So what do you get when you see this patient who's a post-surgical patient? Left buttock and leg pain originally. Now they're coming in with a greater degree of back pain and buttock pain. What do you want to say about this one? Notice what's missing? What did this patient have? L4, L5, laminectomies. See how you got bone, whoops, sorry. See how you have bone missing from the back? So they did basically a complete laminectomy on this patient for their complaint of back pain. Now let me give you a variation of the theme here because I didn't show it, I, don't, I didn't think I brought a case of this one. Sometimes when you do a laminectomy, you take the bone off right by the facet joint, so it's really open. The pedicle and the lamina are there for a reason, aren't they? It's kind of protection of the spinal canal. Do you want to leave your cauda equina exposed? I mean, I would prefer not to because you're going to make it more likely that you can subject the patient to greater injury. So I'm not a fan of doing that if you don't have to. I mean, if it's really stenotic, you don't have a choice, feel free. But not when everything looks relatively wide open to begin with. I don't know what the heck they were thinking. But here's the problem with this patient. Oh, so the patient I was going to tell you about, not this one. Sometimes you'll see like a partial laminectomy where they just take out a little chunk. Where if they take out a little chunk and there's still some kind of a disc pathology there, the disc tends to push the whole cauda equina out through the notch that you just make. So now you have the, the meninges and the nerve roots and the thecal sac all rubbing against bone that shouldn't have been there before, and that can cause a problem. Those patients are in brutal shape. So guess what this patient had? What would you have thought was a potential possibility if you had done an exam and the patient's complaining of buttock pain with no ridiculous symptoms? It could be buttock pain with ridiculous symptoms. We'll talk about that. But what would be your first impression? We had a SI problem. We had a whole session on that at Pain Week this time. So guess what the patient had on clinical exam? Sacroiliitis. If they examined the patient first, we would have presented a radical laminectomy. 
So what do you think we did? We injected the SI joint. Now, there's a couple different variations to the theme I wanted to talk to you about. Interventional guys would like to inject at the very base of the joint, those of you who are interventionalists in the room, right? I tend to like and prefer injecting the SI joint from the upper approach over here. And that's because the larger area of the joint surface is there. So if you're gonna have a problem, where do you think it's gonna occur? The larger area of the joint surface. Plus the ligaments over the top of the SI joint tend to get irritated as well. So the cool thing you do is after you inject the lion's share of the SI joint, when you pull the needle out, before you get it out of the patient, you inject the ligaments over the top and you give yourself a twofer. So that's typically what we do. There's a variation of this theme that's going to give you radiating leg pain to mimic sciatica. I did a telemedicine consult on one of those just the other day. So what happens is, because the SI joint is irritated and inflamed, the body puts muscles in spasm and says, don't move. One of them might be the quadratus lumborum muscle saying, don't move the pelvis. The other one's going to be the piriformis muscle. You ever hear of a piriformis entrapment? So the pronotal division of the static nerve exits right underneath the piriformis. There's anatomical anomalies. 12% of the patient population has an anatomical anomaly in which the pronotal division of the static nerve either pierces through or goes inferior to the piriformis muscle. So there's variations of the theme. So if the piriformis muscle, which externally rotates the leg, is now going into spasm because it's trying to stabilize for the sacroiliitis, what's the potential that that can entrap the static nerve, giving you static symptoms coming from the buttock going down the leg? Pretty high. You know, and those patients have a typical antalgic presentation too. They'll sit there while they're talking to you. That leg's going to be externally rotated to take the pressure off the piriformis. They tend to be standing on the other leg clearly an antalgic posturing that we see all the time with that condition. So in that case, we treat the sacroiliitis, do we have to treat the piriformis? The answer is no, because the piriformis tended to be the secondary pathology there, so it goes away on its own, okay? So more often than not, we treat an underlying pathology and we don't have to treat the piriformis, but sometimes we do. Let's say the piriformis is causing a nerve root entrapment or you think you have a piriformis syndrome. What's the most common thing people do for a piriformis syndrome? Exercises and stretches? What would that do to something that's already mean and angry? Maybe make it meaner and angrier? And then I'll give you another variation of the theme. We see people do piriformis blocks all the time, right? So the meat and bread of the potato of the piriformis is right closer to the sacrum, correct? Then why is it some of these guys go with a target right over here at the insertion on the greater trochanter? What's that gonna do for the price of tea in China? So you know that zone where you're supposed to stay away from when it comes to that injection safe zone in the buttock because you don't wanna inject the static nerve? Guess where you gotta be really close to if you're gonna do a piriformis injection the right way? Especially when you have one of those anatomical anomalies and you don't have a choice because those patients will respond to nothing else. So what about this one? So this one I, is, a, is one of the soldiers that I saw when I was at Evans Army Community Hospital for that preceptorship we did a couple of years ago. So this is a guy that presented, he can't put any weight bearing on his lower extremity, he's walking around with crutches, he's complaining of extreme pain. So the problem is, this is the pre-surgical imaging studies on the top, all right? They went in and said we did a microdiscectomy. Here's the post-surgical imaging studies on the bottom. Okay, how do you know that those are the post post-op imaging studies on the bottom versus the top. See the little white dot here in the back of the lamina? That's where they drilled a hole in the lamina to drop the instruments in to do a microscopic discectomy. Make sense? So I'm comfortable that he had a procedure, but let's take a really close look at the disc herniation here at L5-S1. See what it looks like? Pre-surgical? 
What do you say about the post-surgical? Looks pretty damn identical to me. Remember what I said about the cover-up, bless you, about the cover-up being worse than the crime? Let's read the interpretation of the doctor's office note from the visit after his post-op MRI. Despite the fact that the patient has undergone a successful lumbar microdiscectomy with marked improvement in his neurologic complaints and findings and essentially normal post-operative MRI scan, he tells me he's unable to work anymore because of his low back pain, and he's apparently failed all aggressive, non-invasive treatments with no, no option for treatment. Basically, he was saying the patient's malingering. What do we say? How dare you? Man, I, put a, I wrote a letter back to the base commander putting the pre-surgical and post-surgical MRIs together in the letter and said this surgeon does not deserve and should never be given the opportunity to ever see one of our soldiers again. Because I like putting it in their face. So I don't know what happened, but that's what I asked for. Let's talk about this one. So here's our back, back pain patient. So right-sided back and leg pain, intermittent, following the static type distribution, both varying in intensity, nothing real severe. So here is our MRI. What do you see when you see this MRI? Anything worth commenting on? That's the patient. Maybe a small protrusion? I don't know. What do you think? So what this patient had was, we've just talked about that piriformis entrapment, right? So what happened was this patient basically had two things going on. This patient had what I like to call thoracolumbar junction syndrome. How many of you guys have a model of a spine hanging in your office? A few of you. So here's my challenge for you when you get back to your office next week. Take the spine, put it a little bit into extension, and then give it a twist. And look where the shear force goes through. The shear force is going to go right through the T11, T12 facet joint. Why is that? Because lumbar facets are sagittal. They go up and down, right? So they allow you to go forward and back. Do they allow you to twist? Bless you. No. Thoracic facet joints, on the other hand, are coronal. They're like this. Well, they allow you to not only bend forward and back, but they also allow you to twist. If it wasn't for the fact that you have a rib cage, you'd probably be able to spin all around and really twist that sucker. So T12 does not know what it wants to be when it grows up because it's got lumbar facets on the bottom and thoracic facets on the top. So when you do that twist, the shear force goes through T11. Remember Michelle Kwan, Olympic skater? who was practicing for the Olympics and then got hurt and didn't compete, I saw her, they were showing her practicing, and I saw her do this. So what happened is she irritated her T, likely, because I didn't get to evaluate her, but she likely irritated her T11, T12 facet joint. So what happens when you do that? Well, the nerve innervation to the longissimus muscle in your back, we're going to go through that, comes from anywhere from T10 to L2. So if you irritate the facet joint, that causes a little bit of mild radiculitis, so the muscle thinks it's getting some signal from the body, so it goes into, become hypertonic, goes into a spasm. Well, a muscles cross a joint, right? So where that muscle crosses the joint, it has to attach to a bone. Well, if that muscle's pulling on the attachment site, that can cause a tendonitis, enthesitis. Where does that muscle attach? Base of the back, right? So that gives you back pain. But that also involves typically a quadratus lumborum spasm as well. And what the quadratus lumborum does is it rotates the ilium forward. Well, remember, the SI joint is like a wedge shape, but it's kind of a flared coronal wedge. So what happens is when the SI joint goes up, what happens to the leg? Because you make the piriformis tighter. It turns out. So these patients have that same antal. This is how she's standing talking to you. 
I have the world's largest collection, arguably, of back pictures. I'm not weird in any way. It's just I use it as an educational tool. One, to show a patient what's in spasm, and two, to document when we make those spasms go away. So if you have a patient and the MRI is normal and they want an opioid and you can see a muscle spasm that you can't control, that the patient can't control so it's involuntary, that helps support the veracity of the patient complaint. Doesn't necessarily tell you what it is, but at least it helps support the veracity of the patient complaint. So I'd be comfortable in providing an opioid in spite of a normal MRI. Make sense? So this patient, when we looked at her pictures, you can see the longissimus spasm here. It's higher on one side than the other. And I'll show you some better pictures of it in a second. Quadratus lumborum over here all due to this T11, T12 facet irritation. So we injected the T11, T12 facet joint and manipulated that joint back. That was the whole treatment. So we took a year of a problem that was going on and made it go away. Like one treatment. Follow-up was live long and prosper. Call me if it comes back. There was some extremity complaints, but remember that was from the piriformis because when the ilium rotates forward, the piriformis becomes tighter, we're creating a pseudosciatica. So the problem was above and below where everyone had treated this problem for an entire year. Scary, isn't it? You read the patient, don't read the imaging studies. I think we got through that pretty good. So when it comes to looking at our patient's backs, there are all sorts of things that cause back pain, right? The things that we're going to be talking about today pretty much are the mechanical musculoskeletal causes. So we're talking discogenic, ligamentous, muscular, stenotic type problems, facet mediate, degenerative, ugate, everything on this mechanical and even inflammatory side. We are not going to talk about the red flags because we can do a whole session on red flags of back pain, but you don't see red flags coming to your office that often. I will say a couple of words for the ones that you are most likely to see, but I will tell you in my near 30-year practice history, among the patients that I have seen cross my desk that were referred to me for evaluating back pain is we've seen patients with metastatic kidney disease, kidney pathologies, dissecting abdominal aneurysms, and even a few pelvic pain complaints. So those things can cross your desk. You just have to be really to identify that something's not right here and be able to flag that. And it's pretty scary when you get a referral from someone who's doing physical therapy and manipulation and the patient has a dissecting abdominal aneurysm and you're wondering, man, are they lucky that didn't blow. Think about that. So one of the red flags is for infection, right? Fever. What about you know, unexplained weight loss, especially when it's rapid or pain worse at night? Well, that's going to be indicative of maybe some kind of metastatic disease or cancer-type problem. What about the condyequinus syndrome when you have like a really bad, an immediate severe disc herniation now causing motor findings and saddle anesthesia? Okay, that's also a red flag for an immediate problem that's going to probably require a very urgent surgical intervention. But you're going to see that and you're going to recognize it because it's going to scare you when they walk in the office. So what are the different causes we're going to look at today? Well, disc herniations, which I started the discussion with. But remember, I also started by saying not all pain is caused by disc herniations. Disc pathologies come in multiple variations of the theme. We could have a disc herniation causing nerve root compression. We all agree? But you've also heard the term disc tears, have you not? Well, if you tear a disc, think about the pathophysiology here. Some people say the disc is innervated. Some people say it's not. Some people say that innervation is because of the end plates of the vertebra that is highly innervated because of the periosteum of bone. 
who knows? I'm not going to make that argument. But I will say that if you tear a disc, you're going to get the release of inflammatory cytokines like tumor necrosis factor alpha. So if you have a nerve that's passing by a disc tear that's inflamed, would that disc tear be likely to cause the nerve to become inflamed? Yes. But would that possibly respond to an oral steroid or an injectable steroid or an NSAID? Yes. So those are variations of the theme. And you can have a disc herniation that's abutting or touching a nerve but not compressing it, and that too can cause an inflammatory type pathology. So we have radiculopathy, radiculitis, possibly causing by these disc herniations. So that's some of the neurogenic causes, right? How about facet joints? We've all heard this term facet pathologies or facet joint issues, right? Well, facets can come in various themes, flavors too. You can have a facet joint that's irritated or inflamed, but can't that same facet capsule also leak out inflammatory cytokines to inflame the nerve root as it exits? You betcha. So in that case, you'd have a facet pathology causing a radiculitis. So if you had a facet pathology causing radiculitis, would that patient respond to an epidural alone? Probably not. Would they respond to an intraarticular facet block alone? Probably not. Would they respond to a medial branch block where you block the nerve that innervates the facet joint and the multifidus muscles? Really not, because you still have inflammation of the joint and inflammation of the nerve root. Think about what happens when you do a radiofrequency ablation on a patient that you got a positive outcome for a medial branch block that might have given you an anesthetic effect. You're blocking the perception of pain in the facet joint, but you're not changing the inflammatory process, even if you can nail the medial branch, which I would argue is like trying to throw darts at a dartboard blindfolded because you're probably not really hitting the medial branch anyway. But that's another sore point that I sometimes leak out. So there's a variations of the theme with respect to facets. How about muscles? What kind of muscle pain can there be? We can have injury to the muscle, like you know, sprain, strain. A muscle that's in spasm for a long period of time or hypertonic for a long period of time is going to be not so happy for a couple of reasons, right? You get lactic acid buildup in the muscle itself. That can cause pain, burning pain. You ever have patients complaining of burning pain in their back? All the time. What does that muscle do? Well, it attaches against, you know, there's an origin and insertion, and when that muscle contracts, it pulls the joint closer. But if that muscle is contracted for a long time, don't you think the tendinous insertion of where it attaches can get inflamed, angry, and irritated? Well, that's causing a tendonitis enthesitis. You can have that too. So there's variations of the theme for muscle spasms. And then we can have two kinds of muscle spasms. We can have what I like to call primary and secondary muscle spasms. Well, what's the difference there? Well, if the body has a problem, what's the first thing it does on a movable joint? It says, don't move, right? So it puts muscles in spasms and says, whoa, stop. You ever turn your head to one side really quick and feel a shock-like sensation and you like stop in your tracks? That's because your body said you're about to irritate a cervical nerve root and I'm not going to let you do it. Freeze. And then your body realizes you're not really at risk for hurting anything that says, okay, you're fine, you can turn now. Well, what happens if that's chronic? So to me, that would be more of a secondary pathology because it's a guarding mechanism. So it's there to prevent from further injury but it's not being caused by, let's say, the nerve root that was innervating the muscle telling it to contract or because you injured the muscle itself. We've heard a lot of talk about, in several sessions that I sat through, talking about back pain that's local to the SI joints, and we heard a lot of discussion yesterday about hip problems referring to back pain. I even gave you a fractured hip example presenting as back pain. 
So obviously we can have a problem in the hip as well. So we have multiple issues with respect to our patient's backs. The key is, how do we determine what is going on for our patient at that particular time? Short of having like a crystal ball where the patient comes in and they put their hand on it, you can say, ha, here's what it is. Although I'd like to invent that because I think that would be pretty good. So what are the chances of a patient having just one problem? Well, the, if it's an initial onset or an acute onset, yeah, that could be pretty, pretty good. But once you've had it for a long period of time, that chance gets minimized more and more and more. So by the time you're seeing a chronic pain patient, they often have overlapping symptoms and overlapping pathologies, which means now it takes even a higher skill set to identify them. So if you identify something that you can see on clinical exam and you treat it and it keeps on coming back, what do you say? Maybe that's a secondary problem or maybe there's something else still there. It doesn't mean you missed the diagnosis because the patient's responding short-term to what you did. It means there's still something underlying and you have to dig deeper. And there are some times I will tell you that I will, I'll suspect that there's something buried in there somewhere. So we'll do an injection, let's say. We get the patient off the exam table and before anything else wears off anesthetic-wise, I'm examining them again, looking for what was being covered, that I knew something was there, I just couldn't peg it out, while whatever was sort of lifted off, the layer was lifted off from the injection that we did. So nothing says you have to wait. Sometimes we see patients with creative problems, and if you have a creative problem, you have to think outside the box and be creative to address it. So we talk about the history with respect to our patient. We want that information. And what was the running joke I mentioned when we talked about this the other day? Patients don't always volunteer that information, do they? Sometimes they want to tell you what they think is important, which might not be what you know to be important. And there is a skill to the art of interrogating a patient to get the information you need to help with that clinical decision-making process. So, I mean, I picture myself, if I ever decide to go back to the clinical practice, I'm going to put a really big, bright light over the exam table. So what happens when the patient comes in, I'm going to flip off all the lights, flip on that big bright light, and I'm going to start interrogating them to get the information out. Because they never volunteer what you need, you have to get it. So don't go by just what they say. You have to ask the right questions. You'd be surprised. And half the time, I forgot who said this today, because I got a good chuckle out of this, because it is so right. The patient won't volunteer the information that you're trying to get, but the person who's with them might, especially if it's a spouse or a family member. Like, Ma, you didn't tell them that. It's like, oh, come on. We need that information. So that information is helpful because it tells you a lot about what's going on, too, like temporal factors, for example. When you say, yeah, man, even bed rest doesn't help. As a matter of fact, it feels worse at night. Well, that's one of those red flags for a potential metastatic disease, right? Now, mind you, I had a patient that had every single workup for cancer and metastatic disease you could possibly think of because they had a rib arthropathy. I think it was like the seventh or eighth costovertebral joint was irritated and not articulating properly, getting really inflamed. So if that rib is popped out of place, what happens when you lie on it? It's going to hurt. So we treated the guy with an injection and manipulation. And, and um, I don't know whether, well, the, the first time I got a thank you from his wife, after that she was cursing me. She wanted him to go back to the couch. A few of you got that and knew what happened. So morning stiffness. What if the patient is stiff in the morning when they first get up? What does that suggest? An inflammatory pathology. You know, it's like, oh, doc, I have problems getting out of bed, and then I you know, get to move around a little bit, and I'm okay, but then the more activity I do during the day, the worse it gets. We know there's an inflammatory problem someplace. We just got to figure it out. 
So right away, part of your armamentarium is more likely going to include something to address inflammation, whether it's an anti-inflammatory medication or a steroid, right off the bat, and we haven't gotten anywhere yet. So a lot of information may tell you more about the origin too, such as the patient says, wow, if I cough or sneeze, I get really sharp pain. What's that going to tell you? Well, maybe there is some nerve root compression or severe stenotic condition going on someplace, because that's basically a Valsalva's maneuver, right? What happens if the patient says, man, I just, you know, if I'm bending forward, I'm okay. I just can't go back. Where the patient's walking into your office, you know, and they're taking a few steps, and then they have to kind of rest, and they're bending forward, and then they take a few more steps and rest again, claudication. What do those things tell you? So for neurogenic claudication or bending forward for antalgia, that says, well, maybe we have a symptomatic stenosis, or maybe we have nerve root compression associated with something like a disc herniation. Those make sense. On the other hand, if the patient says, man, you know, I can go back without a problem. I don't care how bad your MRI is. What's the chance that you have nerve root compression from a disc if you're doing that? Not too much, is it? Because what do you do when you bend backwards? You're, you're taking a herniation and pushing it out further, or you're taking that foraminal stenosis caused by the disc herniation and making it smaller. Well, that wouldn't be. But on the other hand, if you have a facet that's inflamed, those patients don't like stretching the facet capsule, so they're not going to be the ones that are bending forward. They're going to be the ones that like staying back. Right? So a lot of what you're seeing and what the patient's describing give you a lot of information from the get-go where you start focusing your attention. If I was to tell you how to do an examination from scratch today, the first thing I would tell you is that there is no way, single way, to do an examination of the back. We all come from different backgrounds. We all look at things differently. So there's not one way that works for everybody, just like there's not one car everybody likes. Basically, what you have to do when it comes to evaluating a back or any other musculoskeletal complaint is you have to develop an exam that works for you. You have to come up with enough of components in that exam so you have a reasonable chance at differentially diagnosing what could be the potential underlying problems. But I can't show you how to do the exam that's going to work for you. I can only give you those components. You have to put them together yourself. The thing I will tell you, and funny story here, I'll tell you this. So at, uh, I did this, this session a number of years ago at another pain meeting. And um, I met some, there was a doctor that I had met at the meetings there, and I used to see him all the time. And I was in his city for something else, so I called him up to meet him for lunch. So I got to his office, and he said, I'm you know, with my last patient. As a matter of fact, why don't you come into the exam with me? Because he's all proud to show me his exam. So he does the examination of this new patient for back pain. So afterwards, he says, okay, Dave, so what do you think? That was pretty good, wasn't it? And I said, if you're auditioning for a Broadway show, that was the best exam I've ever seen in my life. He said, what? And he, got the, he, he diagnosed the problem. That wasn't it. But what happens was he basically had the patient doing a choreographed display. They're sitting, standing, lying, bending, twisting, lying, sitting, standing. Both he and the patient were all over the exam room multiple times during the course of the evaluation. And it took him about 35 minutes. So I said to him, look, the key here is you can be a lot more efficient and get this done in half the time. And he looked at me like, yeah, right. I said, no, no, no. You do all the things when a patient's sitting, when they're sitting. All the things while the patient is standing, while they're standing. All the things when they're lying on their stomach, when they're lying on the stomach, and all the things they're doing when they're lying on their back, on their back. You'll go through that whole exam in a fraction of the time. He said, why do you do it in the order that you do? He says, because that's the order it is on the exam form. 
So if that's the case, fix your record. <laughs> but the exam form itself could serve as the reminder or your checklist for things to do if you're not used to doing it all the time because some of you see a diverse number of patients. You know, if all you saw was back pain all day long, you wouldn't need the form to remind you what to do. But if one patient was a back and one patient was a neck and the other patient was the, um, the uh, what's the foot condition that they do all the NSAID studies on? A what? Fresh out. I, I was actually thinking of the um, the um, the cyst thing in the foot. Oh, um, Morton's neuroma. Yeah, they'll do like that's all what they do all the inflammatory studies on in medications because it's a very easy selective disorder to play with. So the idea is be efficient in your exam. So I said, hey, do me a favor. Can I? do your next patient, because you had another back pain patient coming after lunch, but I'm going to do your exam and I'll prove my point. And I knocked that exam out in 12 minutes and got the same findings that he would have done. So be efficient. You'll be surprised how much more you can get into that exam. Moral of the story. So Dr. Zakharoff mentioned the other day, and so did Dr. Corvus um, examining the observing the patient is extremely important. I will tell you that I would get every single patient out of my waiting room myself because I'll peek into the waiting room before I even say hello to the patient because I want to see how they're sitting in the waiting room because I want to see what that patient is doing because remember half the patients I see or most of the patients I saw 90% became workers comp so I always have to worry about other things okay I'm going to tell you a story you're going to love this when I first started in practice I had an office on the sixth floor of a building, and my office window had floor-to-ceiling glass looking out over the parking lot and the trees. But no one would ever see that because I had these double mahogany doors going to that room, and those doors were always closed. So a patient would never perceive there was even a window in my office. So this patient is a worker's comp case, and he's, he walks in taking little baby steps, moaning and groaning with a cane. So I did my exam on him, and I actually thought there was an underlying problem, but I thought it was relatively small. It was like the equivalent of a sprain strain. There is nothing major going on here. You know, so I'm already thinking that embellishing is really high on my scale. Little problem, maybe give him an NSAID, send him on his way, he'll be fine. Right? So I get a call from the nurse case manager about the time that he's leaving the office. So I'm staring, I just happen to be talking to her on the phone, staring out my window, looking while I'm talking. The patient gets out the front door, tosses the cane up in the air like he's in a Broadway show, grabs it, makes a beeline for his Jeep in the parking lot, which had the top down, hops over the door into the car, and drives away. What do you think my medical record showed? I described that. <laughs> so let's just say he did not have a worker's comp claim after that. But observing the patient is extremely important. So in the very least, I'm listening to the patient while I'm talking to them, and watching their behaviors. Like when I'm looking at the patient with neck and upper extremity pain, for example, and, I want, and they're pretending like they can't move their head, I want to know if that's real. Because if it's real, you know, you'll walk over here and the patient's going to turn their whole body because they can't turn to see you. But on the other hand, if they're not paying attention and you distracted them, they'll turn over and talk to you like it's nothing and forget that they're guarding their neck. So you have all these cute little tricks that you have to play with. So these are patients and their intelligent posturing while they're talking to me in my exam room. So I'm looking at these patients and I'm already thinking about what's going on. So let's knock these out. So here's patient number one. What do you think about patient number one? What is he talking about? We've already talked about this before. So what do you think? 
spinal stenosis or nerve root compression associated with like a disc type herniation, right? Because what's he doing? He's leaning forward. When he leans forward, you open up the canal, you suck the disc in a little bit, you open up the IVF. These patients, and here's his disc pathology. When he'd go back down, that would squirt right into the nerve root, causing nerve root compression. I mean, he ultimately became a disc decompression, like minimally invasive disc decompression. But that's his antalgic posturing. And then all the other pieces of the exam fit in, so we know we're legit. How about this guy? So this guy, if it's hard to see, but he's leaning back in the chair. So if he's leaning back, what do we think it's not? A symptomatic stenosis or a disc herniation causing nerve root compression, right? But what was the most likely candidate, remember, if I said the patient's leaning back? Facet. Okay, this patient has a facet problem. So I will tell you that it turned out to be at L5S1, so I'll be fair about that. Now the other trick question, as I'll tell you, his resenting complaints included radiating leg pain. So remember we talked about a facet being inflamed can cause a radiculitis. So here's the trick question for you. Which side is it on, left or right? Okay, how many people say left? How many people say right? I'd say we're, well, you guys are favoring the left side. It was the right. How do you know? Well, what's, what's a nerve root stretch test? Straight leg raising, right? Or Bechterus. What's he doing with his right leg? Contracting it to take the pressure off. So he's doing the reverse of a nerve root stretch test to give you an antalgic posturing because he's straightening out the other leg. And he, if you notice, he's also leaning towards that side, just a little bit of a hair too. So this patient had an L5-S1 facet inflammation with an L5 radiculitis causing radiculopathy. And how do you think we treated that? An intraarticular injection into the L5-S1 facet joint. And to be honest, I can't remember if we did an L5 transferaminal or an L5 catheter guided epidural because I want you to address the nerve root and the facet pathology at the same time. Because if you addressed one because you say, I want to do a diagnostic block, if the other's still inflamed, what do you get? A false negative. So we trade in trade for a confirmatory diagnosis by a selective spinal injection, we trade that for the likelihood of a better clinical outcome. Remember, I said you have to think outside the box. No one says you have to do it every, the way that everybody else does routinely, especially if you want to fix the patient. Okay, what does this lovely lady have? And you can tell she's a medical professional, right? The uniform gives it away. <laughs> SI joint. How do you, why do you think? What's she avoiding weight on? The SI joint, right? There's also a variation to the theme here, and that can be for a thoracolumbar junction that we talked about before. Because what happens is, when you have a thoracolumbar junction, remember, you're going to get a spasm typically of a quadratus lumborum that'll rotate the ilium forward, so that makes your pelvis not so flat, which makes sitting down in a flat position a little difficult. You're always wanting to lift one side off the table. So that could mimic a presentation like a sacroiliitis. This person happened to have a sacroiliitis, if I recall. And so what do you do when you have a sacroiliitis or an inflamed SI joint? You inject the SI joint. Yeah, and if it's injected, here's the variations of the theme. If it's, in, if it's inflamed, we inject. If it's stuck, we try and manipulate. If it's stuck and inflamed, we inject and manipulate. And if it's been stuck for a long time, we still inject and manipulate. Because if you try to manipulate a joint that's stuck and it's been there for a while, you think you're going to break it? Probably not. If you inject or try to manipulate a joint that's inflamed or irritated, what happens when you try and manipulate it? It's going to hurt. 
So by doing the injection, you're giving some steroid that's going to help it heal. The presence of the steroid and the anesthetic actually help minimize the discomfort and lubricate the joint. So it'll, you can manipulate one that you couldn't move otherwise. So the combination of the two treatments together gives you an outcome because manipulation alone wouldn't be possible. And if you injected it alone, you might get a therapeutic effect of the steroid, but it, excuse me, it wears off in about a week or two, right? And it comes back, so now you're back to square one. See how we think outside the box? Okay, how about this guy? I like the questions Dr. Argoff asks because Dr. Argoff always asks you a question, but if he asks you a question, you know it's going to be a trick question because it's never the answer you think it's going to be or the obvious answer. So that said, what do you think this patient has? A psoas contracture. How do you know that? Because the psoas comes down underneath the trochanter, so it wants to lift up the leg. So patients with psoas contractures are fun to play with. Okay, you're not supposed to be playing with your patients. But if you try and lie this patient on a table because they're stuck forward, what happens to the leg? It lifts up. So if you push the leg down, what happens to the torso? Comes back. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Now, for, as far as entrapment syndromes go, this is one of those pathologies that can be self-perpetuating. You know why? This is one of the few areas of the body where the nerve that goes to the psoas pierces through the psoas, then comes back and innervates it. So a contracted psoas can cause its own nerve entrapment. But a psoas contracture can also happen for an upper lumbar, think lumbar plexus, radiculopathy, radiculitis as well. So these patients also require a significant amount of teasing out to determine what the underlying cause is. Okay? But I want to throw it in there because I think it's pretty obvious. And if you look at the way he's walking compared to the anatomical distribution here where the muscle goes, it makes it pretty obvious, doesn't it? Because it's pulling his leg up. So he looks like he's been riding a horse for too long. So his muscle contractor. How about this guy? Now, I will tell you that this guy had a discectomy times two and then a fusion. And he's still walking like that. What's the first thing that moves when you take a step? Your hips. What's the next thing that moves on that kinetic chain? Your SI joints, right? Now, there's not a lot of movement in the SI joint. It's only a little to begin with. But that's the next thing that moves. So if you have a patient who's walking like this, what's he trying to stop from moving? His SI joints or his hips. So you have to do the exam to rule out hip or SI. This guy had a bilateral sacroiliitis. Okay? So what do, what do we get from observation, even though we haven't laid a hand on the patient yet? A lot of information, don't we? Yes? We all agree? Okay. So I put this one up in the imaging study session because I really love this pathology. So here's our pathology. We're going to put some of the knowledge for all the things we've talked about so far to the test. What is the clinical presentation potentially of this patient? What do you see? Sort of a really significantly herniated disc. Some might argue that it, there might be a, a um, you know, that you might have had a little part of it that sheared off. But whatever it is, it's kind of into the middle of the canal, giving you a really severe canal stenosis, right? So what happens in a case when you have this with respect to the patient? What's the antalgic posturing this patient has? Remember, like Dr. Argoff says, you only, he only asks a question if it's not the obvious answer. These patients are just frozen in place. I'm not sure what the position is because any position hurts. 
Because what happens is if you go forward, you're pulling all the spinal nerve roots against the disc herniation. If you go back, you're also putting, pushing it into it. So what happens? You just can't move. These patients are frozen. They just don't move at all. They are miserable. And half the time, because you spared the nerve root above, you might be sparing the nerve root alone. And if you have enough space in the canal for things to slow get by, what you end up with is just that feedback mechanism that says don't move. So your primary complaint is all of these muscle spasms in the back just splinting, saying you're stuck. So that gives you axial pain. Do you know we have surgeons that look at patients like this and say, well, we're not going to operate because you don't have any radiating pain. Well, I challenge any of you to put a big marble in your shoe and walk normally down the floor. That's not going to happen. These patients, unfortunately, become surgical if they're stuck that bad because there is nothing that's going to help that. And we've had a couple of patients where they've tried to do epidurals on them and then that sort of, or give them muscle relaxants, which is the big one because the patient comes in and they have splinting muscles on both sides. So you give them a heavy-duty muscle relaxant, that hurts the guarding mechanism. They get a little bit more movement out of it. Guess what happens to their overall condition? It gets worse. Okay, so we look at our patients next when we start to examine them. You know, the typical, when you look at the textbook, it says you're supposed to look for scars and kyphosis and whatever. You know what the first thing I'm looking for? Muscle spasms <laughs> and scars, because scars, because half my patients are low back surgery, you know, post low back surgery, so you gotta look. But remember I said that you can take a picture of a muscle spasm? So Eugene, come here. Everyone, Eugene, Gene, everybody. Make a muscle. Show them everyone's biceps. Okay, he works out. Okay, turn around. Now contract your quadratus lumborum for everybody. How about your longissimus muscle? You can't. All you guys know anatomy, these are not muscles that we voluntarily control, right? Thank you, Eugene. So if you bend the patient over an exam table and you see a muscle spasm like this, there you go, you see the difference from left to right? Everyone see that? Can you say there's a muscle spasm there? Yes. The question is, your record shouldn't say muscle spasm. What should your record say? What muscles are in spasm? There's only like, you know, half a dozen or so muscles in the low back. So if you don't know them, learn them. And if you're not sure, you want a reminder, stick a chart up on the wall. Because truthfully, if the patient is bent over an exam table, they won't see that you looked up at the chart to see what that muscle was called. And besides, having the chart on the wall is easy because then you get to show the patient what muscle was in spasm when you took the picture of it so you can say, look, here's the muscle. See on you? And I do that because what happens, we talked about in the neuropathic pain, you know, pain pathophys session both days. What happens when you get the patient? You treat the pathology, but because they've had it for so long, central sensitization set in. So you treated the pathology. They come back a couple of weeks later for a follow-up. You repeated your exam findings, and every single exam finding is normal, but the patient still says, I have pain. Well, that's because those neuroplastic changes have to go back and turn the other way. So all too often, I'm repeating all the things that were positive on that exam to show the patient they're not positive anymore, and I'm showing the patient pictures of the before and pictures of the after. Look, here's the spasm you had. Look, it's gone. So you're doing really well. It just takes time for your body to get back to normal. And we're basically using nothing to treat these patients but cognitive behavioral therapy, coping strategies, right? So muscle spasms become very easy to document. And in some cases, they might be the only lifeline that you have to put in your record to support the fact that you just gave them an opioid because the MRI is normal because some bozo someplace is gonna say there's nothing wrong with the patient, they must be medication seeking. 
But we know that's not going to happen anymore, is it? So here's something. If I told you a visual analog scale is an objective measure of the presence of pathology, what would you tell me? Remember, Argoff, don't ask a question. Okay. I would tell you that is a true statement because if you use your pain scale to use it as a straight edge to prove that there's a muscle spasm, I have just validated the fact that the uh, a visual analog scale can be an objective indicator of the presence of pathology. Just please don't take that out of context. <laughs> and that is my favorite pain scale, by the way, because it has numbers, colors, temperatures. If you flip it over, I think you know, the other one I have has face, faces on it too. So again, out of context, it makes me look not so great. In context, it's a good laugh. So basically, a picture is worth a 1,000 words. And I have thousands of patient pictures dating back to the early 1990s. I even was so enamored about doing that, I bought the first digital camera from Sony. So I had the ability of doing that. And that was expensive back in the day. Now you just pull up your cell phone, and you're good to go. Can't make it any easier than that. So this one you can see, that's an obvious no-brainer. This one's a little bit more subtle, because what's happening to the patient? They look like they're listing off like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Let me give you the story for this one because the picture thing really works well in this. So this is a, a, a young couple, husband and wife, they walk in. And the, the patient's husband says, when I took the picture of the patient's back, the picture of the patient's husband says, listen, doc, you know, we just got back from our honeymoon a couple, of, a couple of months ago. And I have pictures of my wife on the beach. And trust me, she looks really hot. But I have pictures of my wife in a bikini on the beach. And I'm telling you she was pinned straight. And she's not pinned straight since that car accident. So I know that something's wrong. So he pulls out his cell phone and shows me the pictures of his wife in a bikini on the beach looking pinned straight. So I said, can I have that? And I took the picture of her in the bikini and put it in the report along with the picture showing her listening to one side because that helped demonstrate the veracity of the patient complaint. Did we fix it? Yes, it turned out to be a thoracolumbar thing. And that's a common seatbelt injury. Think about this, okay? Your buttock is planted in the seat by the lap belt, right? And now you have this thing called a shoulder harness that comes along this way. And when you get a good hit, what does your torso do? It twists because the shoulder harness goes one way. If you twist, what happens when you twist? Where does the shear force go? T11, T12. In a normal patient, there could be some anatomical variation where it goes up or down a level, but that's your primary entry. So this is one of those... Everyone's missing it. Everyone's looking at the low back. We treated the thoracolumbar junction. Patient did great. But to get the validation necessary to get the insurance company to pay for treatment, we had to put a picture of her in a bikini in the report. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> so what I wanted to do just to demonstrate how important those pictures are and how important that we use them, this is an actual record. This happens to be a thoracolumbar junction variation, too, where he had some facet involvement with really without severe radiculitis at you know, T11, T12, T12, L1. And this patient had a back problem. If you read the record, it went on for a couple of years. She came to me because she transferred from New York to Richmond, so they needed a new pain doc, and that's how I ended up with the patient. So that was my working diagnosis, and I talked about it. So because I didn't think it was nerve root in this case, I thought it was more musculoskeletal without radiculitis, and the muscle spasms were more from a guarding mechanism, we opted to do a medial branch block, which you've heard. So medial branch block comes back and, and gets the medial recurrent branch of the spinal nerve root that innervates the facet joint and the multifidus muscles. Okay? 
So we did a medial branch block at the thoracolumbar junction, essentially, because if we tried to manipulate this patient, it's been there for so long, we'd be doing adjustments two or three times a week for God knows how long, and I don't do that. If I don't get an immediate response, I'm, I'm not there. So I like being for the moment. So these are the fluoro images from the medial branch block. This is the back pictures post-injection, but still pre-manipulation. And these are the pictures immediately post-manipulation. You know why I use this patient for this little slide? Because of the body art. You can see that it's the same patient, right? Do everybody agree? Can you see muscle spasms there? No muscle spasms there? So the picture now used to document the essentially outcome of our treatment. And believe it or not, I think we ended up having to treat the patient one more time with just a follow-up manipulation a couple of weeks later when she had this small exacerbation. I think it was just one selective level. And the rest of the time was getting her weaned off the medication she was on for two years. And again, moral support, getting her over the neuroplastic changes that set in for being managed for back pain for several years. These things bother me because they're such ridiculously simple problems that should have never gone on. It should not have become a chronic pain pathology. But see how the pictures work? And when the patient would come in, I'd be taking new pictures every time and say, look, you're still doing good, see? So pictures go a long way. And these are all pre-post pictures. You can see the immediate change. This guy, you can see the quadratus lumborum spasm here in the longissimus on this side, and that was as far as he can go down. So immediately after the treatment, he's like practically putting his head through his legs, which I can't go down that far either. But you just so you can see the difference in range of motion even just immediately following the treatment. Can everybody see the pre and post changes here? This guy went from listing to a side like the patient with the bikini to pin straight. This one had a really nice spasm of the erector spinae muscles. It's gone. This guy, you can see the muscle spasm slightly because I didn't have a marker there, but look what happens to the change in range of motion after the adjustment. We never treated the soldier again. That was his one-time treatment for that one. He had a shoulder problem that he had to keep on coming back in for, but that was something else. So when I do the reports on these patients, not only do I put the picture of the muscle spasm, I put some reference of an anatomical image with an arrow saying, look here. That's because I don't expect you guys to do this. You might show the picture to your patient, but I view every single medical record I have ever created as an educational tool for the patient, the referring physician, or whoever else is going to look at this record, or maybe even the insurance carrier if I want to make sure I get paid for that procedure. And I used to pride myself on that. We, we include floral images, we include patient pictures, we include anatomical references. So yeah, I'm a little bit over the top, I'm sorry, but I'm not expecting you to be there, but just to know that this is a reference if you need it, because sometimes you're going to need to put a picture in a record. You never know. So. We've taken pictures of our patients. We've looked at the way they behave. We have to touch them, don't we? I had a patient once, and I tell you no lies. This patient was being referred to me for the evaluation of back pain. All right? So I get a history, and I'm talking to the patient, and then I go to proceed to do my exam. The patient's got a grapefruit-sized cyst right about here. So Basically, what I'm asking where his pain was, it was always kind of mid-thoracic pain anyway, but he's being treated as a low back patient. This patient had several injections with respect to his low back and had been referred for physical therapy of his low back. There's a grapefruit-sized cyst there. There's no mention in the record of it. The cyst happened as a result of the car accident, and that's where all his pain has been the entire time. And even though it lights up like a Christmas tree, no one was paying any attention to it. So you got a picture where you're showing a patient with a cyst. It's like, do we miss something? 
Then you got the insurance company saying, well, that must not have been there. There's nothing in the medical records, so it had to happen. It's not related. No, it's been there the whole time. It's embarrassing that no one documented it. Scary, isn't it? So we evaluate our patients. We touch things. You know, all I can say is if you're not experienced touching a patient's back or neck, you got to practice on someone. So call your best friend, call your spouse. If you're going to start learning to do this on patients, what I'm going to ask that you do is if the patient says it hurts here on the right, you start by palpating the left because you want to see what normal feels like and you don't want to hurt the patient at first because you hurt the patient first. They're not going to let you go on with that example. All right? So it's okay to practice. I'm not saying don't. I'm just saying be nice. You know, and if you don't believe that you can feel things, you all can take your fingers and put them on your neck and just fan your fingers out like this into the sulcus between the spinous process and lateral process, and your fingers are all over multifidus muscles. And if any of you have any kind of neck pain or discomfort, I will guarantee you that you'll perceive there's like a knot under one of your fingers. So get used to palpation because you get a lot from palpation. Because even if you weren't able to figure out, let's say, what level the nerve root problem was at. Truth is, whatever level the nerve root problem is at is going to give you multifidus muscle spasms to guard against it to say, don't move. So sometimes that palpatory exam might be the best thing you have to localize the target. You got to touch and feel your patients. Just do so with the door open. And I do that all the time, too. I never close the door all the way to the exam room. So we palpate the patient, we examine them, but we do it more than once because I'll do it when they're standing or weight-bearing and maybe flex forward. So I'll you know, commonly have them flex to the exam table or something like this so I can feel things while they're standing. But I'm going to palpate them again, too, while they're lying down because all too often, what you, sometimes you can't feel things because they're in spasm and weight-bearing, and sometimes when you lie them down, some of the muscle spasms that were there in weight-bearing all of a sudden disappear. What does that tell you? Well, that was a secondary muscle spasm that was guarding for some underlying pathology, which is great. So now it makes it easier to palpate. And some things are easier to palpate when the patient is in weight-bearing versus when they're lying prone in a non-weight-bearing position. So you're going to have to palpate twice. You're not even going to palpate once. So what are we looking at? We just talked about primary versus secondary muscle spasms. So let's talk about the anatomy. Remember I said there are only so many muscles in the low back? Okay, so I wanted to see something. So during the course of a year, and I think I did this in two, early 2000s, like 2001, 2002, out of all the records that I had gotten on a patient where, the, where there was some note of muscle spasm somewhere, I wanted to see how many times the muscle that was in spasm was named, or I also looked in the record to see if the patient was on a muscle relaxant if the muscle that was in spasm was named in the record. Guess how many I found over the course of a year? None. That's pretty scary, isn't it? Because if I give you a muscle relaxant, does, shouldn't it have a purpose? So I'd like to know, yeah, I got muscle contractors of the uh, longissimus or the erector spinae muscles on the left. Don't know why they're there, but to make the patient more comfortable because I think it's contributing to his clinical presentation and complaints, I'm going to give him this muscle relaxant. What about just saying muscle spasms generic? What does that mean? It's like saying, I have a headache. Well, how many different medications or ways do you have for treating headaches? Don't you want to know what might work best? Let's have a little bit more specificity here. So 
when we look at specificity, the first layer of muscles that you see is the erector spinae muscles. The really long one is the longismus. And the longismus, if you notice, goes all the way from L5S1 at the bottom, and then it, it kind of goes all the way up top and attaches to the ribs in the shoulder. Do you know how many times we treat patients that are being treated for back and shoulder pain, and you treat their back problem, and all of a sudden the shoulder pain goes away? Yeah, it's because they're linked together by the erector spinae muscle pulling on those ribs, causing like all sorts of crazy shoulder problems. Huh, interesting. There's a, the spinalis is this little pencil-shaped muscle that goes from about T12L1 all the way up to about C7T1. You won't be able to see it until I take this big layer off. And these lateral branches here are called the iliocostalis muscles. Well, the nerve innervation for the longismus is from T10 to L2. So a problem at the thoracolumbar junction is going to cause a spasm of this muscle. But if that muscle contracts, where are you going to feel the enthesitis tendonitis at? Maybe the posterior shoulder, or how about the low back? Hmm. So the problem here is presenting as low back pain. So how many times can you treat that low back problem and you're not making a dent in it? Maybe there's a problem someplace else. And I will bet you dollars to donuts, every time you bend that patient over an exam table, you'll probably see a longismus muscle spasm. You just got to know why it's there. So if you pull the longismus muscle off, here's that spinalis sitting in the sulcus between the, the, the lateral process and spinous process, and there's one on both sides. You have the multifidus muscles that go from vertebra to vertebra. So what are the direction of the fibers of the longismus muscles and the erector spinae muscles, and the um, iliocostalis muscles? The direction of the fibers is what? Up and down? What's the direction of the fibers and the multifidus muscles? Angular, right? So you will find that the longismus is an easy one because you have a, follows a long length of the back. But even when you're starting to get down to shorter segments, you will be able to perceive as you're palpating the patient remarkably through even layers of soft tissue and fat, which direction those muscle fibers are going in. Have you ever palpated trigger points? Can't you tell which direction the fibers are going? Yeah. So that you can be able to differentiate and say, look, I have multifidus muscle spasms over here because I know I'm feeling through that longismus, but I can feel the fibers going this way. Oh. How about the quadratus lumborum? How often do you see patients coming in where they say, I got pain, it's like off to the side. What do you think is causing that? How about the piriformis? Uh, not piriformis, the, um, I think those arrows got moved. The quadratus lumborum, because the quadratus lumborum comes off at an angle. It goes from T11, T12, comes off at an angle to the iliac crest, and that'll pull the ilium up. So if you bend the patient over the exam table and you're feeling that, you're seeing that piriformis, the quadratus lumborum, I'll bet when you get to that insertion site on the iliac crest and you press on it, I'm going to bet you dollars to donut the patient says, ow, because you're getting a tendonitis, enthesitis at the insertion site for that quadratus lumborum. And if I had to tell you the muscle that seems to be the most problematic on a clinical exam when the patient's in weight-bearing, you'll see quadratus lumborum all the time. But when I lay the patient down, if the quadratus lumborum muscle disappears, what do we say about that? Secondary. So then we already know that that's not part of the problem. That's part of what's compensating for the problem. We still look someplace else. So multifidus muscle spasms, longismus, spinalis, iliocostalis, which is kind of the shorter ones, but still up and down around the thoracolumbar junction into the lower lumbar spine, the piriformis. What happens when I say the ilium rotates forward? What does it do to the piriformis? Tightens it. 
So the patient's in weight-bearing. You poke your finger in the piriformis, what do you think's going to happen? They're going to complain. The leg will give away. It'll be some indication there's something going on there. But we also look for other muscles outside because we're looking at the iliotibial band. We're looking for trochanteric bursitis. We're looking at gluteus medius, gluteus minimus, gluteus maximus. So there are other things that you're palpating, but you're still palpating. You've got to get that down. We go below the muscles. We look at ligaments. You know, strangely enough, when I started in practice, we used to see a lot of iliolumbar ligament irritations. And for some reason, we don't see as many as we used to, and I, I don't know why. And it might have been the change in seat belts and things like that, because we used to see a lot of car accident and car injuries then. We still saw car accident injuries now, but I will say all oh, the seats and seat belt designs have all changed, so maybe that played a role. I don't know. Um, we palpate ligaments over the SI joint. There's the sacred tuberous ligament. You've got the ligaments that are... Oh, the other thing we used to see a lot of would have been like um, interspinous ligaments early on. But once people started wearing shoulder harnesses on seatbelts, what does that happen or what does that do? Now we don't get those you know, real severe forward flexion injuries all the time. So maybe that stops some of the tearing for the interspinous ligaments. But you got to palpate. And last but not least, what's below all of this soft tissue that you have to get through? Things like facet joints, right? Um, the the SI joint, you know, you're palpating over the SI joint, it causes pain. Well, that's probably because you're irritating the ligament over the top of the joint, granted. How about facet joints? How do you tell the difference between a facet involvement versus just the medial branch spasm, you know, a, a um, um, multifidus muscle spasm? Here's a tough one, right? Because the facet joint's underneath the multifidus muscle, right? Okay, well, the multifidus muscle is going to have tenderness along the whole course of the muscle, which is short fibers, Yes. But how big is the facet joint? Very small. So if you get that one small area where you can really turn the patient into a squeeze toy, hmm, I think there's facet involvement. So we don't diagnose a facet by a diagnostic block. We diagnose it by feeling it. And so we'll feel it. We'll identify it. I usually keep like a little china marker in my pocket or on the exam table or something so I can mark it if I want to. And after I find it, you know what I always do? Come back and press it again because I want to make sure that it's consistent. Right? It's, was it measure, measure twice? Was it measure twice, cut once? Yes. So we always verify. If I get a palpatory finding, I always go back and verify it. It only takes a couple of seconds. But you just want to be sure, especially when the patients are diffuse, have diffuse complaints. For that matter, what happens when you get a patient with diffuse complaints? Have you ever seen the patient where you try and examine them and everything hurts? How often does that happen? This is where I have to take a serious step back and put my hand on the patient's shoulder. And we do that for multiple reasons, actually, because human contact brings with it something that's very special. There's a whole thing that talks about oxytocin letdown and other things like that, too, right? So if I walk up to you, what's your name? Robin. Robin. If I walk up to Robin and I put my hand on Robin's shoulder, Robin's going to get it like an immediate calming, soothing effect. So as I talk to her, she's going to take me a little bit more seriously, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're telling the patient, look, I understand that everything hurts, okay? but you have to work with me here. You have to help me try and find the things that hurt the most. Because if you're telling me that everything hurts, I can't kind of get through that to figure out what your problem is. So you have to do your best to work with me here, and let's get through this together. And all of a sudden, not everything hurts anymore, and you can palpate and examine the patient. But you've got to push through that. So you know, there, there's a lot of psychological things we do when it comes to our patients that we have to really pay attention to that all too often falls through the cracks. So range of motion. You know, we're evaluating range of motion on patients all the time, don't we? 
Ask me when the last time I wrote down the number of degrees of motion in a, in a patient's record. And you're going to ask that question, right? I haven't done that in a long time because I don't give a hoot about how many degrees of motion that you have. I hate when I look at records and say, oh, 30 degrees flexion, 20 degrees extension, whatever. Okay, assuming all of you in the room had no problems whatsoever and we decided to measure your lumbar range of motion or your cervical range of motion, how many of you think would have the exactly the same degrees of movement? It ain't happening. So you have to be able to perceive that, hey, this doesn't look right for the patient, so I'm going for that. But you also look at what happens while you're doing range of motion. If the patient's like bending forward really slow and they're complaining of a pulling pain, okay, they went, it looked like it's reduced, but they're complaining of a pulling and they get a catching pain at the end. That's what I'm noting in the record. Or they got down and it looked like it was reduced, but man, they couldn't get back up. That's important because those things are telling you information about what's going on. So I, I did a patient once. Um, she was a, a, a young girl. Um, did a lot of gymnastics, but she was working as a nurse and she got hurt lifting or you know, pulling a patient, which is a common injury we see from nurses, and you know, hospital nurses. And uh, so the IME exam on her said she must be fine because she has normal range of motion. Well, normal range of motion for you and I might be this much degree of flexion. For her, she can get into positions that I thought she had, you know, was it Escher, Downlos, whatever, ED, EDES? Yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> so when we treated her back problem, she's bending over and twisting like a pretzel. So I don't think her range of motion was normal, was it? Even though it looked normal to a population. So I'm not writing down degrees of motion. I want to see what happens when you're measuring range of motion. Is, does the patient, you know, are they catching? Are they causing pulling pain? Is it causing a catching pain? And there's some things that I can do to alter range of motion, such as let's, you know, one of the orthopedic tests we'll talk about is first thing that moves is your hips, right? Next thing that moves is your SI joints. So if the patient says, I can't move, one of the first things I do when I do those orthopedic tests is you, know, you can compress the pelvis together because now I'm taking the hips and the SI joint out of the equation and all of a sudden the patient bends down further. You're getting an idea where that pathology might be, right? Because movement went to the back faster and that seemed unoccluded, but yet we took out the hip and the SI joint, and that seems to be where the problem might be. So there's other things that play a role here. Not degrees, look at characteristics of. How about deep tendon reflexes? It's motor and sensory examination. Okay, if we're doing a general status exam and we do DTRs, the typical DTRs we do you know, for the upper extremities are what? Biceps, triceps, brachioradialis? What are the ones we do for the lower extremities? Patellar, knee. Achilles, ankle, and, and, okay. If you're doing a general status exam, that might be fine. But if you're evaluating a patient's back, what's the most likely nerve injured according to most of the textbooks would be? L5, followed by L4. Does that make sense? Okay, so what's the nerve level for the patellar reflex? L4. What's the nerve root level for the Achilles? S1. What's the deep tendon reflex for L5? Hamstring. How many of you have done a hamstring DTR? I like him. There's a book. It was, it was, it was, um, it's a German text. It's not that thick. And it wasn't even translated into English. Um, but it's a German text. And it's like, I can't remember the title because it's the rough translation to English. But it's like deep tendon reflexes from C4 to S2. 
So apparently there is a deep tendon reflex for every single nerve root from C4 to S2. And you can guess what S2 might be. So in the very least with respect to a back, shouldn't you be doing the hamstring? The question is, where is it? So all of you can reach down right now to the back of your knee and you can feel the tendon for the biceps femoris, right? Guess which tendon you tap for the hamstring reflex? That's pretty much it. Once you get good at it and you practice a few times, you have the patient slide forward on the exam table a little bit, you can peg it right when they're sitting down. If you want to do it and learn it and you haven't done it a few times, you can do it with the patient lying prone because you have the reflex hammer in your pocket and you, it's not working, but it usually shows it working. You can peg it while they're on their stomach. There is no reason from this point forward never to do a hamstring DTR on a patient complaining of back pain because I will tell you there was low back malpractice surgical case in Hawaii that settled. The surgeon did nothing wrong. This guy was like honest, most sincere guy I've ever heard of. Records were great. I heard the video, you saw the video deposition. He was honest, sincere. He was just trying to clean up somebody else's mess. But the doc who evaluated the patient after his surgery, which was the second, and the patient had actually become much less acute because I thought the first surgeon was the butcher. But the, the the, INM, or the, the person who examined the patient after him said that there was a loss of or an absence of the hamstring DTR, suggesting there was some L5 radiculopathy still. But I knew there was scarring of the L5 root because this patient had epidural fibrosis from a really bad surgery from the first time. But because the surgeon could not say that it was absent before he did the surgery, they hooked him for that. Well, he, he said, I, I don't know, I never looked. They didn't know there was one. That doesn't work. So please, please, please do the hamstring. You'll be surprised what you find out because that might help be the only thing that helps you differentiate between an L4 and an L5 or an S1 radiculopathy with static distribution. So biceps femoris. How about sensory exams? We all do sensory examination, don't we? Do we see patients that have like pain that goes down the posterior thigh? Well, is that a dermatome or a myotome? It's a trick question. Remember, I'm learning a lot from Dr. Argoff. So it's a dermatome because it might be a nerve root level like, you know, L5 or S1, but it can also be a myotome because what's the muscle? Hamstring, right? So be cognizant when you do sensory examination and or where the patient's complaining of pain because it might be dermatomal, but it could be myotomal. So pay attention. It's the only thing I have to say about that. But when you do a motor exam, okay, so I had to go to the ER a number of years ago because I was having like an immediate onset of numbness, tingling, and contra muscle contractors in my one lower extremity without any evidence of any back complaint whatsoever. So I call up a friend of mine who, who practically lives at the hospital and go over to ask Mirage and we'll do a Doppler. And so he, he couldn't find anything, so he talked me into going to the ER. So I went there for what? D-dimer and Doppler study because you know, my friends were telling me, you know, we, we know you don't want to go, but we'd rather have you around to argue with you later. So I and actually I had a patient today that had to go to the ER for the same thing. So I go to the ER, and they did the D-dimer. It was normal. Doppler was normal, too. But meanwhile, I'm having these contractures in my leg. So the ER doc does her quasi-exam. So her motor exam was dorsiflexed your foot. Motor exam, normal. Well, um... We got dorsiflexion, but you got plantar flexion, lateral rota external rotation, internal rotation, flexion extension of the knee, flexion extension of the hip, 
abduction, abduction of the hip. Where was the rest of your motor exam? So it was kind of funny because the ER doc says to him, calls Mirage up and says, look, you know, Glick's here, and I'm telling him I want to do a lumbar MRI, and he's saying no because he doesn't think it's coming from your, his back, and Mirage says, look, you know, like he knows backs pretty well. If he says it's not his back, it's not his back. So she you know, said, okay, and I'm going out. And as I'm walking out the ER, she says, you sure you don't want me to do a lumbar MRI? It's like, yeah, I'm positive. Thank you. So it turned out I ended up with a strange um, neuropathy because I basically sort of contused or bruised the static nerve there for a second. So I did something a couple of days before that caused it to occur, and it just caused it to set in. So it took a little while to get, to get through that. And as a matter of fact, I'll give you a little treatment, clinical pearl for treatment out of that. So what I ended up with four or five days into it is I had a contracture of a muscle in my leg that was really annoying, but it pretty much was the tibialis anterior, which is what was contracting the most and causing my pain. So what do you think I did? Topical baclofen. Why not apply a muscle relaxant over the one muscle that's in spasm? So it gets compounded like a roll-on. You roll that sucker on, and I'm able to walk. I'm not liking it, but at least it's taking the edge off, and I can get by. Because it took a few weeks for that to get over, for that, you know, to get over that. So, in as quick as I said, plantar flexion, dorsiflexion, external rotation, internal rotation, flexion extension of the knee, flexion extension of the hip, hip abduction, adduction. That's how quick you can do a motor exam. Is there any reason just to do dorsiflexion on the toes and say you're good? No. And then how do we score a motor exam? Well, we score a motor exam by no movement, meaning the, no twitch. One is you see a movement in the muscle belly, but the joint doesn't move. Two is the joint moves against gra with gravity. Three is the joint moves with gravity. But most of our patients seem to fall with joint moves against gravity with some resistance, and then there's full strength. Is this the end all? No, because we also will do like four plus, five minus. You, know, you can plus or minus this a little bit too. We're okay. So I'll do, you know, motor examination was intact with all muscle groups measuring 5 slash 5, where everything was normal measuring 5 slash 5, except this, which measured 4 slash 5. And if the patient is what you perceive to be, if they're like you're doing an upper extremity, for example, and you get really good strength in the right arm, and you know they're right-handed, but then you go to test the left, and it's stronger than the right, and they're right-hand dominant, what does that tell you? Maybe the right was not normal, so maybe that's a 5 minus or a 4 plus. Just something to think about, a little tip. So here's where I want to start having some fun. What I've done for you with these is I've taken a number of orthopedic maneuvers that I think are among the most valuable for you to include in your exam. There are hundreds of orthopedic maneuvers with respect to the back. Some of them are the same tests with different names and others are variations of the same theme that give you different information. So the running joke was I used to know about 70 by name. I'm getting old and I'm forgetting some of them. But I used to have friends that used to try and stump me with crazy, really strange tests to see if I would know the name. And most of the time I'd know the name, but a lot of times I would know what the maneuver was. I just couldn't remember what the name was, so we'll see. But what I did is I wanted to pick a few that you can incorporate every day that are very easy to do, and when you put them together, give you a lot of information about the patient. Does that make sense? All right, in order to do this and make it work, I'm, if, if you guys that are in the far-flung stretches of the room, I'm going to kind of ask you maybe to come closer because you'll never be able to see this otherwise, okay? As a matter of fact, can someone give me a hand? Because I'd rather take this table off and put it on the ground so no one can fall. Does someone want to come here? Because we're actually going to do these. All right. 
And what was your name again? Jelly. Jelly. Come on, Jelly. We're going to introduce you to the rest of the class. Ah, and that hurt. Well, it's my own shoulder problem. I have a torn spinal accessory nerve. Not a fun chance. All right, Jelly. So let's start with minors. You know what minors is? Minors is an observation that I do of a patient long before they even get into my exam room because I'm watching the way that they got out of the chair in the waiting room. What's a positive minors? Well, if the patient's sitting down, right, and they go to get out of a chair, if they do one of these numbers, that's a positive minors because they're helping themselves get out of the chair, right? If, so minors says there's something going on. I don't know what it is, but I think the patient's legit. If the patient says, you call the patient, they do this, yeah, we're good. <laughs> because you know, as soon as they walk in your room and they're saying, ooh, ooh, ah, ah, you everything moans, then, yeah, that's not right. So minors. It's actually one of the tests that you use for malingering, part of that whole scenario with, um, what do you, with Waddell's, because Waddell signs. And by the way, Waddell never said that was a sign for malingering if you had three of these 11 things positive. You know that. It's never been a test for malingering. Waddell's as a whole was meant to say, if you have a positive Waddell's, meaning three out of these 11 things are positive, that means there might be a psychological component underlying, so our multidisciplinary team should include a psychological workup. That's what Waddell says. The whole thing about malingering was actually mistaken, but that's a whole other ball of wax. So we have just done her minor's test, and that was normal. Okay, have a seat. So first of all, she's wearing shoes. What's the first thing you're going to have your patient do when they get on that exam table? Say goodbye to the shoes, right? Because we have to be able to see their feet. If this shoe was a normal patient, I'd have her in a gown. I don't need a whole gown. I'm just evaluating her back. So her shirt would still be on, but I'd have the slacks off because it would be really hard to evaluate a patient when you have tight pants. But this is where, oh, those are cool. <laughs> Gotta love it. I'd still have her put on a gown because I'd be looking at her, at her whole legs. But a lot of times I'll also forewarn patients about wearing loose clothing. <laughs> there you go. So one of the things we do, we just talked about muscle testing, right? So muscle testing is bend your toes up, now your foot, you know, then you go. And you're doing both sides at one time, right? And then it's external rotation, internal rotation. Here's where I do bectoroos, right in the middle of my motor exam. Straighten the leg out for me. And you let, put it back. Now do that one. Put it back. Do them both together. That's bectoroos. So what did I just do? And then put them down. Then after I finish that, then I'll finish my motor exam. OK, push against my hand as hard as you can. Pull back. All right. Push your knee up like that. Pull down. And then push your legs apart. Apart. There you go. And then in. So that would have been the whole motor exam. But I stuck in the middle bectoroos. What is bectoroos? Bectoroos is a nerve root stretch test for the sciatic nerve. So if you have a patient that has an L5-S1, fancy meeting you here. If the patient has an L5 radiculopathy kind of thing, a sciatic nerve distribution problem, nerve root, what they tend to do is they either can't raise their leg up all the way or they have to lean back to get the leg up. That would be a positive bectoroos indicative of a nerve root type problem somehow associated with the static distribution, L4, L5, L5, S1, okay? So what's the next one? Faber-Patrick. We've all heard about Faber-Patrick, right? 
So what Faber-Patrick basically is, is a test for a hip pathology, yes? So why don't you put your head that way, only because we don't want you to expose all those people that are standing over there. <laughs> so we're going to be nice about that. So with Faber-Patrick, that is one of those tests that you can make that hurt on anybody. Because when you put a joint at to the end of its paraphysiologic space, can you make that joint hurt? <laughs> yeah. So you can get a false positive for a Faber-Patrick if you do it wrong. There's multiple ways to skin a cat, and it's basically flexion, abduction, external rotation. Faber is the movement. Patrick is the guy's name. So put your leg down for me, this one. I'm going to take this knee, and I'm going to bend it out, and I'm going to be very gentle about it. I'm not going to force it down. You can put a little extra push to it, and you can see she's grimacing. So what does that say? Positive for a hip or possibly, even though it's mostly for a hip pain, it could also be SI. So when the patient grimaces like she just did, I'm going to be very careful for the patient to tell me where it hurts. Because if it hurts like deep in here, that's hip, right? But if she says it's hurting in the back, what's that? SI. Okay? So Faber-Patrick can be hip or SI. Don't ever force it down. You, can, you don't have to cross the knee. You can be a little gentle if you want and put it on the side. You're going to get the same thing. You'll just have a little extra movement out of it if you notice. Like when I crossed the leg, it didn't go down as far. When I was off to the side, I can go down further. I would just have to push down a little bit more. And you can gently push to make sure. But if you get that grimace on the patient, guess what? It's positive. So SI or hip. So what about piriformis stress test? There's a couple of different ways to test the piriformis. What the piriformis does is externally rotate the leg, right? So if you want to test the piriformis, what do you do? You internally rotate. So we can do that, which twists the whole body, but all too often patients have concomitant problems and comorbidities like a knee problem. Do I want to twist that patient's leg like that if they have a knee problem? Not really. So I think the, the safer way to do a piriformis stress test is with the patient's knee right up here because I just finished that Faber-Patrick maneuver, is I can stabilize the hip by putting my hand over here, and I can push the leg in like that. Because if I do that, what am I doing? Stretching the piriformis. And the patient would say, ow. And sometimes they might complain of pain going down into the leg. Piriformis stress test. What about straight leg raising or Lasagues? The guy who wrote the book on orthopedic tests basically said, Straight leg raising is the most inconclusive of any of the orthopedic maneuvers out there. What's the most common diagnostic orthopedic maneuver we see for the low back? Straight leg raising. What is the least specific test possible known to man for evaluating the low back? Straight leg raising. Huh. There's a couple of variations to the theme. Some people call it Lasagne. Some people call it straight leg raising. There's a whole bunch of different ways of doing it. Here's how I do it and how all these things go together. So in addition to straight leg raising, we're also looking at gold weights, braggards, saccards, and bowstring. So I'm looking at all four of these things together. So the first thing we want to know when we do a straight leg raising is I'm going to grab the patient's leg, right? And I'm going to start bringing the patient's leg up. And I'm talking the patient through this the whole time. I always do. What do you think the first thing the patient does when you start lifting their leg? They lift it for you. So you have to tell the patient, no, 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 let me do it. Guarantee you, you'll see that every time. So I'm lifting the patient's leg up, and I'm saying, look, do me a favor. If you start to feel any pain, let me know when and let me know where. Where and when is important. So I'm lifting the patient up, the patient's leg up. We're up to 90 degrees there, aren't we? 
So what would we say in her case? Straight leg raises are pretty negative to 90 degrees. I'm happy with that, okay? Let's say, we're going to fake the situation here. I'm lifting her leg up, and right over here, she says, ooh, oh, ah. Okay, what's the only thing that moved? The hip. So what would that be? Hip. You'd say straight leg raising was positive for hip pain at about 20 degrees. That makes sense. You can go up a little further if you want then and see what happens and see where it plays out, but you can. Let's say I was up about 45 degrees because that's a common result where she says, ow, and it goes all the way down her leg, right, or feels it into her thigh. That's a common finding too. So here, as I lift up, tell me you're getting thigh, back and thigh pain at about 45 degrees. Ah, see, how, see what she did? She like guarded and jumped. That was a good fake. <laughs> so now what do you do? Straight leg raising positive at 45 degrees for what? Oh, she was complaining of back and leg pain. So I'm going to do two things right away. One is I'm going to lower the leg just below where it caused pain, and I'm going to bend back the big toe. That's called saccards. Saccards would be positive for nerve root stretch. So if it was coming from a radiculopathy nerve root type problem, that would replicate the pain. Okay? If she says yes, and or if she says no, I'm still going to do braggards. What's braggards? Braggards is dorsiflexion of the whole foot. And what's that going to cause? That would usually cause even more pain, but that's more likely to cause pain in the back of the thigh because you're bringing the hamstrings into the loop. So then you say, hmm, that can be nerve root or a hamstring. Then I'll do bowstrings, which bends the knee at about 90 degrees, and then you poke up into the popliteal fossa. If that causes pain, that's more nerve root, but if it's tender on the tendons like she is, then it's hamstring. Got it? And the other thing I add to the loop there is gold waves. What's that? You put your hand under the whole area of the lumbosacral spine, okay? And I'm going to lift up her leg. I can feel what's moving at the same time she says, ouch. Oh, was that the hip? <laughs> was that the SI joint? Is that the lumbosacral spine? Got that? So gold waves is what moves when the patient starts to report pain. So you see how we took a straight leg raising test? and got all this other information added automatically because we put all these other things with it? Okay. So next is leg lowering in milgrams. The oldest orthopedic test known to man dates back 3,000 years BC. It's from the Edwin Smith papyrus, case number 48, which was a case of back pain. It basically said the patient could lift up their legs, so it was called a sprain of the spine, and to treat it, they did prostration. So the oldest known medical document in Western civilization used an orthopedic test to evaluate essentially intrathecal pressure, and the treatment for correcting the problem was the spinal manipulation. That is scary, isn't it? Because we still do that today. So what I'll do is I will lift the patient's legs up to about here, and I'll ask the patient to hold them up on their own. And she can. See that? So if the patient had a radiculopathy or a myelopathy or something like that, would they be able to hold their legs up with the increased intrathecal pressure? No. no. So if I had to say, if you're showing up with an MRI for me and you have three disc herniations and I'm able to hold your leg, you're able to hold your legs up and you're not wincing, what do I think about the likelihood of those disc pathologies being symptomatic right off the bat? Not so, Kimasabi. And if you really wanted to test the water, you can tell the patient to hold the legs up, and you can push down and push it against resistance. And if you can pick the patient up off the table, sorry about that, they are, that's not going to be a symptomatic disc herniation. And then because, I, you okay? then because I really want to hammer that home, is that like a contracture of the vastus lateralis? 
versus medius, versus medius. We'll talk about that. Okay. (laughs) That's a finding. We're going to have to circle back and get that now, won't we? But that's not the low back exam, unfortunately. That's like another part, but we're going to have to circle back. But you can also have the patient lift their legs up by themselves. So lift your legs up by yourself and do the same thing. It's a variation of the theme. And if you're not sure, sometimes you'll have a patient who's faking it, right? They're not making an effort. You can put your hand on their abdomen. If you don't feel that abdomen contract, they ain't trying too hard. Now, she's got a problem where she's bringing up that leg, and it's causing a spasm, and she's feeling that into the vastus medialis. What's causing that? Anybody want to take a gander? you got a couple of different possibilities. One is an upper lumbar radicular type pathology. What does that say? Your session is supposed to be over 3.30. Really? Yeah. Really? (laughs) They should all be on break now. You guys want to take a break or you want to continue? Okay. There you go. So I will be leaving. Okay. So you guys are all... That's funny, isn't it? (laughs) Sorry about that, but... (laughs) It's a break, and there's no other session that you're going to be missing, so I think we're good, right? Yeah, so we're good. Okay, so what, let, let's, let's all work this out together because this was an unexpected finding, am I right? And what do we do with unexpected findings? We alter the course of our clinical exam because we read the patient. So in the back of your mind, if it's vastus medialis that she's getting, feeling a pain into and getting a contracture in, what's the nerve innervation for the vastus medialis? That comes from the lumbar plexus, doesn't it? Could be L2, L3. More likely than not, it could also be the femoral nerve as it exits under the inguinal ligament. So one of the things that we palpate and look for during our examination would have been to palpate the inguinal ligament. I do that too. We just didn't do it today because we were talking about all the different structures, but that's among the things that I palpate in the pelvis. So what you do for the patient is, especially in a female patient, you always say, look, take your fingers and put them right on the bumps of your pelvis. You know those things that poke out on your, on your front of your pelvis? You know those little bumps? So they're on the, on the anterior superior iliac spine. Well, the, the inguinal ligament runs from the superior, uh, anterior superior iliac spine over to the hyposymphysis, right? So that tells me where the ligament's going to be so I don't have to press in any inappropriate areas. So I'm going to go back in, and I'm going to poke on the inguinal ligament on this side. She flinched because she wasn't expecting it, but that's not so bad, right? What happens when I poke on this side? Ooh, look at that. Hmm. I think that was real. Okay, so if she got a contracture and it's happening in the vastus medialis muscle, which could be getting irritated under the inguinal ligament or it could be coming from the back, but I just pushed over the inguinal ligament and we saw that. Where are we, where are we leaning towards for our exam? Inguinal ligament, femoral nerve at the inguinal ligament, aren't we? Well, let's say that we did everything else and that turned out to be what was problematic. How would we treat that? You're going to take something that's irritated and inflamed and stretch it and hope for an outcome? You can, but it's going to aggravate it, so it's going to take longer to heal. I might want to inject it, and this is where I love using things like topical anti-inflammatory medications like diclofenic off-label, because you can inject it, put a little steroid there, but the patient can be applying a topical diclofenic, you know, a few times a day. That'll help it heal faster. Okay? So that was leg-lowering milgrams, which is indicative of nerve root compression myelopathy. What about bilateral leg raising, double leg raising? What's that? So straight leg raising is one leg at a time, right? Bilateral leg raising is both legs at a time. So let's say when I lift her legs up, I know what's going to happen in this case. They're both at 90. That's normal, right? Let's say S... It's that ligament. (laughs) Let's say... 
that leg rate, straight leg raise was positive at 45, right? And I'm already thinking it might be hip or SI joint just because of gold waist. But if I lift the two legs up together, what's not translating too much anymore? Those are kind of locked in place. So if we get more movement out, well, that's coming from the hip or the SI then. But if I got less movement out of doing the legs together than I did when I did the straight legs separately, you're accelerating movement to the back faster. So what does that mean? Lumbosacral or lumbar spine. Make sense? So it's going to shift the distribution of your pain. Pretty scary. Yes? We're not done yet. <laughs> so then we have the patient turn over on their stomach. So about now is when I do my palpatory examination of the patient non in weight bearing. So that's when I'm looking at things here in the back. And her back actually doesn't look too bad when I feel things right now. So normally if I had done this, she's got a little bit of a spasm here. I would tell the whole world that you guys can come up and palpate it. But um, if you, if somebody, here, give me one person. Well, we'll do two people. That way I'm not showing favorites. How's that? Close your eyes. Okay. Give me your hand. Which side is more tender or more indicative of a spasm or hypertonicity, this side or this side? Well, be close to the spine right there. Yeah, notice it? It's right here. He went right to it. You can feel it with your fingers. She's got a little bit of a multifidus muscle spasm, actually. So here's T12, that's T11, that's T10, that's T8, that's T, did I, say, I missed one there, T9, 8. So it's 8, 9, and it's right over here. So she's got a little bit of a muscle, a little multifidus trigger point at 8, 9. She's probably got a little, a little teeny tiny problem there, which isn't too bad. It's relatively mild, and that's the kind of stuff you treat with manipulation. You're the happy camper on the planet, right? But anyway, so let's finish. So we palpated her back. I don't see anything else going here. If I'm pushing and I'm digging deep into the back at L5, S1, L4, L5, L3, L4, and there's nothing there, guess what? There's nothing there. But if you poke on L4, L5, and she goes, oops, that's a problem. And what do we do when we find one that goes oops, just like when we did here? We go back and we just do it again because you want to verify so you know your finding isn't you know, just a twitch. Okay, so we do our palpatory examination. You can palpate piriformis. You can palpate the gluteal muscles. You can look for trochanteric bursitis. She's got a little trochanteric bursitis there too, which is probably makes sense because she's not been walking too well because of that inguinal ligament thing. So the fact that she's got a little bit of trochanteric bursitis here is probably highly common, right? So trochanteric bursitis is a little bit inflamed. The iliotibial band's not so bad. So I think that's just like just from abnormal walking and abnormal gait. Now we're going to finish our orthopedic maneuver. So we do HIBS test. What's HIBS? At HIBS, you're bending the knee at 90 degrees, and you're rocking the leg back and forth. Because what are you moving right now? The hip. And you can actually put your fingers over it and feel the hip moving back and forth under your fingers. She can feel the hip moving back and forth under my fingers. Okay? So that would be positive for a hip pathology. Then we do knockless. What's knockless? Well, knockless is a nerve root stretch test for the lumbar plexus, much like straight leg raising and Bechtrus was a lumbar stretch test for the lumbosacral plexus. So for that, you just do this. Remember we said her differential diagnosis included a lumbar plexus issue, L2, L3? Did she go off the table when I did that? No. So that ruled out back. When I palpated over L2, L3, that also ruled out back which coincided with the fact that when I pegged it over the inguinal ligament, what happened? 
So it's femoral nerve with the inguinal ligament so far, which is contributing to her problem, which is because something's not going on right in the pelvis because we also have a trochanteric bursitis. So all the pieces are starting to put together. See how this thing's manifest? And I, I didn't even know her before this session. Everything's just coming out as we go. So let me talk yeomans. If there was one favorite orthopedic test I have for sacroiliac problems, it's, ortho, it's yeomans. Because yeomans is going to tell you not only that there's a problem, it's going to tell you what kind of a problem you're dealing with. So for yeomans, you're bringing up the bottom of the knee, and you, you always grab at the bottom of the knee because you never want to pull on the knee because you don't know if your patient has a knee problem. And this is the most comfortable way of doing it. You're going to stabilize over the SI joint, and you know you're the SI joint because that's where the dimple is for the PSIS. So you're stabilizing over the SI joint to stop the pelvis from moving, and you're bringing the leg up like that. Did that hurt? It moved, but it hurt. So that means it's inflamed, but it's not stuck. Okay? So there's a little bit of sacroiliitis. But so far, this isn't too far-fetched because we know there's something going on in her pelvis, which is why we're getting the L2 thing going on at the inguinal ligament and the trochanteric bursitis. So all so far, remember I said, who says you have to have one pathology? At least all these things are starting to make sense when you put them all together. So that's yeomans. And we'll do both sides. Because if you're not sure, because sometimes you, know, you have different ranges of motion from patient to patient. So you have to do the good side no matter what, because you need to know what's normal for translational movement on that one particular patient. So we'll do yeomans on this side. Not an issue. See that? I mo it moved, and it wasn't inflamed. Because if it didn't move, you've got to do this. And it's like you feel like you're hitting a wall. You'll really perceive it very quick. And if you go too far because you let the pelvis rock, you can cause back pain if it's like a lower lumbar facet problem or a lower lumbar radiculopathy. So please make sure you stabilize the pelvis because the only thing you want moving is the ilium in the leg. You don't want movement to go through the back. So that's yeomans. You okay? Okay. So, so far, so good for you. I told you we get a diagnosis out of you. So let's have you stand up. Careful, though, because I don't want you to fall off the table. So what is a belt test? Well, belt test basically is also called a supported Adams. Adams is a test where you like bend forward and it causes pain. Great. But if we suspected her problem was SI or hip, if we squeeze the pelvis to, well, here, do it, you do it this way first. First is flex forward, bend forward. See how far she goes? She's like a contortionist. Come on back. <laughs> so it's greater than normal range of motion. So whatever you have is normal. There's nothing wrong with you. So what you do is you squeeze the pelvis together like this, which takes the hip and the pelvis out of it, and then you have the patient bend forward again. And you look at the difference of what happens, <laughs> aside from losing her balance. So if the patient moves quicker, faster, or goes further, it's hip or SI joint. If they move less or get a catching pain, well, what did you shift the movement to? The back. That means it's coming from the back. So changing where that pain happened or the range of motion or the characteristics of it differentiates between hip and back. Okay, what's Glick's test? I had to put it there for the heck of it. I jokingly around named this test because it didn't have a name. So someone in the room once said, call it Glick's test. And I said, yeah, why not? Feel free. I saw it show up one day. On an, I was doing an IME, like a record review. And I saw it in the record review, and I had to laugh. So what Glick's test is is supported atoms, a sitting supported atoms. You'll see a patient that you know, can't bend forward, right? But yet... They sit down, and all of a sudden, they can bend over and put their shoes and socks on. Well, it's the same thing. You took the pelvis out of the loop, and now they can bend their back. It's coming from their hips or their SI joints. Okay? 
And last one that I'm going to talk about is sacroiliac range of motion because that's also one of these things that we commonly overlook on the SI joint. So for a sacroiliac or SI range of motion test, I usually have the patient walk up and stand sideways by a door. And like her, great shape because she's, may I lift this up? She's wearing belt loops. You know, she's got pants on so I can tuck my fingers into her belt loops, put my fingers over her SI joints, the, PSI, the PSIS, and then I'm going to have her lift up her knees one at a time at 90 degrees. Okay, and put it down. Now do the other one. And what you're doing is you're looking for translational movement that you can feel under your fingers. If the joint moves, you, under your finger you'll feel it. You should feel a little bit of movement on the other side, but not so much. Sometimes you feel the motion going too far, so you know that this is stuck because it's transferring movement to the opposite side. And other times the patient won't be able to raise their leg high enough either, and that also tells you there's a problem with that corresponding sacroiliac joint. Okay? Thank you. So we, di we diagnosed her, didn't we? We found a symptom that we, or a thing that we didn't expect. We sort of isolated it down to a couple of different options, and then we're able to take those couple of options and actually come up with a pretty good working diagnosis. So we got a little bit of a trochanteric bursitis, a little bit of a sacroiliac problem, but the biggest part of I think that we're dealing with here is that femoral nerve that's getting irritated at the inguinal ligament. Pretty slick, huh? We have a solution for that, too. So basically... This is a chart that's in the record. You can print this up because they gave me permission to print this at will. So if you think it's cool, it has pictures of the muscles. That's when you can print on the wall. We talked about some of the movements in the pelvis that's there. So that's there too. So during the course of this discussion, we've already talked about the whole idea of thoracolumbar junction. We've talked about piriformis. We've really talked about now sacroiliac joint and hip pathologies as well. Um, one of the referred pain patterns for thoracolumbar junction syndrome, well, you can get that quadratus lumborum going to the top of the iliac crest. But you can also have lumbar radiculitis type problems causing this distribution too. Because L2 and L1 radiculopathies, L2 might go to the outside of the hip. L1 might go to the inguinal region. Think um, genitofemoral ilioinguinal nerves. So it could be a myofascial referral. It could be a radicular referral, radiculopathy, radicular type referral. So it's hard to tell. You've got to get it from your exam. Okay? So basically, you put all the pieces together and you come up with a diagnosis. We have now a different starting point from which to say, this is what we think our patient has, this is what I think we're gonna to go to treat it. Um, if you need additional information, well, that's great. You can always look at electrodiagnostic studies, but you have to remember that if someone's gonna do an electrodiagnostic study, they have to tailor it to the patient after a careful exam, not just a cookie cutter EMG. You can go back and look at the imaging studies and say, okay, I know you have the MRI, let's see what correlates. So you're going to look at what's on the MRI and say what things are not or what things may be based on your exam findings, not based on the pathology. Because if we see radicular type pathologies on our exam, but nothing on the MRI, well, that suggests that it might be a radiculitis. I love when I see those because those are the patients with the best possible plausible outcomes. Those are the ones you can give them an oral steroid or an epidural steroid or something, and they just respond like there's no tomorrow. So to me, the best indi indication of a prognosis is a radiculopathy on exam with nothing on MRI. Sort of the opposite of the worst thing on the planet is a patient with, armed with an MRI interpretation. What do you see when you see a patient like this when it comes to the clinical exam? I had to put this in there for a reason because this is one of those, the many surgical botch-ups that I've seen over my clinical career. Notice this patient has a really severe spondylolisthesis. L5 was slipping off S1. Well, they fused her in spondylolisthesis. 
Is that patient going to be in pain? Yeah. What's the exam going to show on that? I have no idea because you can't do half the maneuvers and anything you touch on the patient hurts. Good luck with that. So this is where clinical, bless you, this is where clinical intuition becomes extremely important. Sorry about that. So they basically fuse this patient in nerve root compression, so this is a monster of a case. What do you do? I'm not sure. How about this guy? Girl. This was the most acute patient I've ever seen in my clinical career. She had so much sen uh, um, central sensitization from having an underlying pathology, all you had to do was like breathe on this girl, and she was wincing in pain. So what happened was they did a fusion on her. They fused her in spondylolisthesis. You can see L5 is off the edge. This screw here, it's supposed to be through the pedicle, but it's going through the IVF. So the screw is causing nerve root compression. This is a laminar hook. It was supposed to be under the lamina here, but the little securing screw for the laminar hook came, through, uh, came loose. So this laminar hook is moving around, floating freely. And what the heck was this cross rod, which I can see why it snapped under stress because this is no longer stable, but what the heck was this little offshoot and where did that come from? This is like you had a guy come in to do carpentry in your house and you're looking at the frame around the window, which isn't even squared and has nails sticking out to boot. Yeah, this patient was really problematic. This is the only patient I have ever had in my clinical career that had to be sedated so I can do an electrodiagnostic test to come back and say, yeah, the elf five nerve roots bilaterally are compressed and L4 is too, thanks to the screw. This one was a real problematic case. Worst lecture I ever did on the planet, uh, probably 10 years ago at a pain meeting, I just went through an hour of surgical screw-ups and I had everyone in the audience cringing, going ooh, ah, and just really not so happy to see the things that people did to these patients. And these happen every day. And I so much hate it because there's no excuse for a single one of these to have happened. And the fact that these guys don't even take responsibility for their own issues really gets under my skin. So don't ask me to lecture at an orthopedic surgeon's conference. In the imaging study lecture, we talked about 3D CTs, which on post-surgical cases might be the only thing you get to use. So in this case where we've talked about multiple levels of degenerative disc disease, when you get the 3D CT, you can actually see that everything, even though there's some early signs of degenerative changes, those are a bunch of words. Everything looks great on imaging study. We can let that go. And this is one of those patients that had either an SI or radiculitis. I can't remember, but I just wanted to put it up there because basically the MRI report said uh, degenerative disc disease throughout the entire lumbar spine. You're thinking this is bad. In reality, it was actually not so bad. So basically, there's nothing to say you can't, you ha that you can't have multiple problems going on, and I think we've teased that apart. Picture is worth a thousand words. So remember, take pictures of your patients, um, touch your patients, make sure all the things you're looking at really make sense. And I guarantee the first patient you do this on when you get home, you're going to come up with a different clinical impression than you have when you started and see if you can make a rational decision to change the clinical outcome of that patient. That's my challenge for you. And if you get a really cool case, call me because I'd love to have fun and help you tease it apart. I have no problems doing that. So with that, thank you for your time. I think we set a record for going over.